Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 194th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's out there solving mysteries like Scooby-Doo and Scrappy 2. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everybody. Uh, settling in here, the start of winter, feeling it quite a bit. It's brutal. Spent. Good hour shoveling today. You, your your brain rationally knows that global warming is a real thing, but <laughs> when you get this cold snap at the start of November, it's still pretty real. It was uh, a lot. It was intense and it was sudden. Yeah. We got like six inches or something. We It was like 50 degrees all weekend and suddenly all this snow and we didn't even realize it was going to snow until Sunday night and it's, we had just happened to have done some lawn work and other stuff that we needed to do on Sunday. And the Sunday night, our friends were like, oh, preparing for the storm. We're like, the what? I watched um, six, I saw six cars in ditches on my drive home on Monday, and I watched three of them happen. Yeah, it's brutal. That that snowbelt Buffalo West half an hour is insane. Like Some of the worst driving I've ever done in the world, and I've been in a lot of bad places. <laughs> has been near buffalo mm-hmm. and, um, and, and your driveway is no joke either no it is very long uh very long not not looking forward to shoveling that we have to get the snow plow i don't know what we're gonna do yet all this just came about a little too quickly for us and we're yet, scrambling for answers and yet with the world turning oh so cold mtg finance does nothing but heat up another banner week in the hobby Ah, oh, see, I the, the segue I would have used is uh, the cold snap was just as sudden as the public's reaction to the mystery packs. I don't know. Which went from super hype to everyone complaining about it in the span of like six minutes. I I'm still not convinced, and this is a continuation of a, you know a repeating problem in 2019 product complexity. And mediocre communication on Wizards' part, leading to a lot of hot takes that are pretty rough. Cold, more cold takes than hot in the end. Um, there are there are things to be concerned about and things to be excited about from the mystery boosters, but many of the takes I saw online were just wrong because people didn't bother to do the research before they started commenting. Wow. This is... Twitter is not an engine for researching before speaking. It's gut reactions. Yeah, I mean, I mean, on, it in, didn't in the, look. It, it didn't look good. In in the same way that people were calling Modern Horizons Commander Masters, people were calling this Walmart Masters, and that was very catchy. If you've ever um, opened one of the random card pack uh, thingamabobbers that have been in, available in big box stores for many years. Um, you immediately understand the reference. So it just a, a list of almost seventeen hundred cards is even beyond my wildest expectations for the mystery boosters. So, maybe we'll start from the top. 
um, and plow through this, given that we've got uh, show sponsor Cool Stuff Inc. sent Evan Irwin over to hang out with us for a bit. So that's going to be segment four. Um, guess we should just take it from our initial impression when we first heard about these things. We had been talking about this at first being potentially you know, Pioneer Masters, that this was the way that they were going to drop a ton of cards uh, into the market to fuel the Pioneer format while simultaneously giving people uh, a reason to be drafting at GPs. And then when they had fully unveiled Pioneer and spoken to the Mystery Boosters in more detail, it became clear that from Wizards' perspective, this product has nothing to do with Pioneer. That, you know, I think Foresight said they were like two ships passing in the night, like two completely different product teams that weren't uh, working very, very closely. Um, And I said at the time, listen, I still think this is going to be some kind of chaos cube type product. I said maybe 550 cards at at max, 1080. Um, And then, you know, we said that even if if they think it's not a Pioneer product, if there's a lot of cards, there's still a very high chance that relevant reprints are going to take place. And then the question becomes, how many and which ones? Um, so then, as it turns out, the Mystery Boosters are 1,694 cards. And that's not including the test cards that um, ended up being the premiums um, that we were predicting would be in the set. A um, little different than I was expecting. But... Oh yeah, this it's, it's, the way it was that less of a premium card and more of a a silver border card. Yeah, I mean, it re- remains to be seen how the market will end up settling on these. They, you know, right away there was cards selling for fifty to one hundred dollars on eBay, but vendors were only paying a few bucks for them and selling them for anywhere from two to fifteen or twenty, depending on wh- which card it was and how desirable it seemed like it might be for cubes or casual or the occasional EDH group that might allow them. Um, but the, there's a whole bunch of very strange things about this set that are worth mentioning in a decent amount of detail now, and maybe we'll go even deeper down the road. The first is that these are regular boosters in the sense that they have 15 cards. One of those slots is taken up by the test prints. Um, if you're opening these at major magic events that are run by CFB events. Um, and so they're going to be distributed through you know, G- the GP circuit throughout the year. And I think I heard that Star City Games also got their hands on these for the tour. So, um, you know, thousands of side events probably throughout the year will be um, cracking these boosters. But it's interesting because the set's not all going to be opened up front with a steeply declining curve of interaction. What I mean by that is that something like Throne of Eldraine is really heavily opened for a month, and then when most people have, you know, get bored of the draft format or they get um, hold of all the cards they need for standard, they really it drop sales drop off heavily. And though the product is still floating around in the market for the rest of the year, you know, in the case of standard product, two years, um, you know, a lot less of it's getting opened. Whereas with this, it's going to be a little closer to when the best analog I can think of is when Mythic Edition One came out. And they had the one-day sale for it online. And then later, for 13 different GPs around the globe over the course of two and a half months, basically every week or so, there was another smattering of the Mythic Editions getting dropped into the market. 
And the result in that case was that there wasn't that much of a decline in the market pricing for Mythic Edition 1 because A, they were geographically distributed. So, you know, if a GP was one week in Philadelphia and the next week it was in Lyon, France or something, you know, those two totally different markets that are absorbing the product locally for the most part with relatively little cross-border arbitrage going on, although some of that certainly happened. Um, I had people buying copies for me in France and in England and shipping them back to me, but not everybody was on that. And you also had, you know, this temporal distribution delay so that even if they printed whatever we thought it was, 10 or 12,000 of those, they didn't all hit the market at once. They were kind of getting absorbed at a relatively steady pace that might have dropped off as the hype cycle died down, but not that many of them were being added back into the market on any given weekend. And so in some ways, mystery boosters are going to follow a fairly similar pattern, right? Like you have to have a, from major event to major event, the market gets a chance to absorb some number of mana crypts. Um, And, you know, there's a couple of interesting dynamics in play there. One is that the packs are all being opened within arm's reach of buy lists. You know, if you're opening something at a GP and you just want to, like, grind drafts, like, you're there, you want to play, like, four or five Mystery Booster events and your pockets aren't as deep as your card pool, you might flip your Mana Crypt to buy into a couple more drafts. And so more a higher percentage of the draft the packs being opened is accessible to vendors which certainly matters versus say all the stuff that get open gets opened out of walmarts and targets and and what have you for a normal set that probably just disappears into casual closets never to return the attrition principle that we've talked about so many times Mm -hmm. i um the distribution model is definitely different here than we're used to seeing with most products because, of course, the way it's spread out across the GPs and then the, you know, the version that's going to hit the local stores, which, which should have the same base 1700 cards, I believe. But I'm, I, you know, my initial reaction, the, the initial reaction on Twitter was very cold. Um, and I think that does a lot to set the tone for the product, even if the EV is there. And it's actually worth opening for the most part, which wasn't obvious uh, on the very initial streams uh, because there's so so much variance. I do wonder if that's going to have a chilling effect on it over the next several months. But beyond that, I guess I'm I'm just not anticipating this being terribly popular at GPs. And I'm willing to be very wrong on this. Maybe, Maybe every player out there who's never played cube and has always wondered about it will now have an opportunity to play cube um you know to to give it a get a taste of it where they haven't had a chance before but at the same time i know cubes got so popular to the point where like everyone in your store i i remember everyone in the store having a cube and you would build a cube and you couldn't find anyone to play it uh and it's like people might just kind of be over that so the distribution model is interesting. I'm just not convinced that players are going to be eager to play with it. Well, I haven't heard a lot of feedback either about whether this format's any good. I mean, it's really hard to balance a limited format for 1,700 cards. They've never tried this before. 
And it's strange. You got to understand if when you're evaluating the set how it is um, printed and collated. There are the the one slot is the test prints, as we said. The other fourteen slots are all coming off their own print sheet. So the usual way that it happens, where there is an, a common and uncommon and a rare and mythic sheet, and um, you know, you have your common slots, they're coming from the common sheet, you have your uncommon slot, it's coming from the uncommon sheet, and then you have the rare, which could be a mythic, you know, one-eighth of the time or whatever, that's all coming off the rare and mythic sheet. And anybody that got a War of the Spark, you know, foil rare and mythic sheet knows what one of those looks like. Um, but this is this is completely different. They took, there's basically two slots that matter the most. One is the rare and mythic slot. And the other one is cards from before Magic 2015. So there's an older cards slot. And that one has a bunch of rares in it too, but they're not all rares. And then there are a bunch of other slots. And those slots are basically commons or uncommons, but they come off a bunch of different print sheets. So basically every slot has its own sheet of 121 cards. So in the rare mythic slot, you have 121 options. In the pre-2015 slot, you have 121 options. And that carries through all the way. And there's a couple of interesting cards that are um, put into the quote-unquote common-uncommon slots, including things like Demonic Tutor and Ristic Study that are very expensive and have, you know, in the case of Demonic Tutor, has been printed as a rare. Ristic Study was most recently a judge promo um, that certainly contribute to the EV of, of the packs. But... The easiest way to think of these packs is actually that it's a pack full of mythics. And the reason for that is that when you're opening a standard booster pack, you have a, uh, a rare in every pack, and one out of every eight boosters roughly is a mythic. And so that what that generally means is to find any given mythic, you basically have like about a 1 in 120 or 1 in 121 chance of getting, you know, whatever, an Oko Thief of Crowns in a pack of a normal booster pack of Throne of Train. Well, that's the same odds you have of pulling any given one of the rares or mythics out of the rare or mythic slot. And it's also true of the commons, because they're coming off their own sheet. They are the same, like, basically, Mana Crypt is the same rarity as Treasure Cruise in this set. Now, and the, even more confusing, the they maintain to the original set symbols. These cards are apparently printed in a different way, and there's a bunch of concern. <laughs> we'll get into this in a second, that they're printed differently, but the bottom line is that you can tell that it's not an original printing because it has a little uh, sub-set symbol in the bottom left corner. But they kept the original uh, set symbol and rarity indicator from whatever set they plucked that version from. So they're showing you that Treasure Cruise is a common, when in fact it is not, by any reasonable measure, a common. And the, the summary of what all that means is that the price impact the, the, is much more likely to be significant with the mythics than it is with the commons. Because dumping a bunch of mythic rarity Treasure Cruises into the market is less of a big deal than adding a bunch of mana crypts. From the perspective of a mana crypt, or the person that the player that might be holding that card, this is essentially like a reprint of Eternal Masters. So long as the print run of the mystery boosters is more or less the same as a master set overall, which it may or may not be. 
That, well, yeah, that I guess that's the question is how much of this is actually going to be out there. I'm I I I my, I I keep coming back to the I suspect it's not terribly popular and given the way the drop rates work, it's not going to end up adding that much to the market. Um you know, when you when you work it out and it ends up being that you're getting one monoc you're opening a monocrypt as often here as you are in EMA, then you're like, okay, well, there's a bunch of new EMA packs that hit the market, but only for this specific card, or rather only for these specific cards. But like, I don't know how, it, you know, it's all, it's it's available as a side event draft, right, at these GPs. It's not like it's a main event. This was a main event, essentially, but now there's going to be a bunch of side events. So I don't know, what, what do you get on a draft? I, they're going to be drafting it, right? So it's let, so 24 me, packs of draft. Let, let me short form it for you. Somebody in the dis, the Pro Trader Discord today did the math and figured out that at an average size GP, you're probably looking at something like 60 to 80 copies of each card being opened. Now, you got you got to think about that, though, in the, the geographic terms that we were applying to Mythic Edition as well. Because the, <sighs> it once these make it into LGSs, it's a little different. Because then there will be repetitive opening if you live in a place where there's a big LGS that could run this for a while successfully without declining returns of interest, which, as you said, are probably likely. Um, but as the GPs hop around North America specifically, and of course, over the few times that they're going to do this overseas, because they are doing it overseas, but probably not, you know, there aren't that many major events overseas anymore. So... You know, Europe might get a, a shot at this two, three, four times this year. I haven't actually looked at the calendar to figure that out. But, you know, people, if you're in France and a GP is there, this might be the only time you ever get to draft the Mystery Booster. So I suspect that that given weekend, they're probably fairly popular. In North America, as the GPs bounce around the country, I would suspect that they are all roughly equally popular as well, maybe trailing off later in the year if people start writing articles about a declining EV in the packs or something. But that brings... Uh, go ahead. I, I, I'm not sure that I buy the 60 to 80 cards open per event math, only because that assumes... Sounds like that assumes a lot more packs being open than I would anticipate. Because if you're talking about 60 to 80 of any given card, that means... And we said, like, we'll we use Monocrypt again as examples. One in 121. So... You're looking at what? Wouldn't that be sixty times one hundred and twenty packs? Well, I think they were they were looking at it being in like the I think it was like forty five hundred. Like every draft is twenty four packs, right? Eight people, three packs a piece. So if they if they get off like one hundred and fifty to two hundred drafts a weekend, you're talking about four to five thousand packs being opened, and that gives you those numbers. Four to five hundred drafts at a GP for the no no for no this no. set not four to five hundred drafts one hundred fifty to two hundred total events. Hmm. And you're right. For some GPs, if they get like relatively low turnout, that could be high. That could be really I, high. Like they might get off I could, fifteen or twenty. Yeah, I could honestly see this being like single digits, low double digits. Um, and we don't we don't have a sense for it, right? I could be way off. Maybe this is extraordinarily popular. It's entirely possible. I'm just like my gut reaction is that this is not going to be crazy popular. But uh, eh, I've been off on these things before. Well, let's well let's use the that math that our mm -hmm. Discord member proposed. Yeah, that's fine. That's as, fine. as our upper bound, 
right? Because it probably isn't going to get any more popular. It's hard to beat the Charlotte GP that was a pro tour and a GP at the same time and happens to be within striking distance of a lot of the East Coast. Yeah. So, you know, that's... Uh, that that might be the high watermark. So, I mean, definitely in a 1700-card set, everything is basically a mythic. So you can so it really comes down to print run size. If it's the size of, of a uh, master set, but it has a much more even and staggered distribution pattern, which we we know that it will, up until the point where they hit LGSs in the second week of March, at which point things will accelerate. So I think that like there's probably a fall-off in buy list prices and card prices for the most important related mythics and rares just out of fear right now, and given that we're heading into a holiday season. And then I would expect that maybe towards, as we get into tax season, some of these may actually start to recover. As we start, you know, some of them, you know, Mana Crypt might make it on our list one week as a as a spec because it gets down to 65 bucks or whatever. And we say, you know what? Yeah, they're going to be opening them all year, but this tends to recover within about a year. And so far as we can tell, these are moderately popular. So we have a decent sense of how many of these are actually going to enter the market. And, you know, maybe it's on our list. And then as the when they hit the LGS, I would expect some more tanking. And then three, four, five months after that, maybe midsummer, you, you see another opportunity to swoop in and pick up some deals. Mm-hmm. I, I my, my, at the end of the day, my read is that this will be a drag, but not cratering. Although I'll be curious to see how Bloom Tender does, um, because that's one of those cards. That, it reminds me of Azusa back in the day, um, where Bloom Tender's price is just out of control. But that's based on. Essentially, there being so few copies in the market. So I'm wondering if a card like that having this additional influx, even if it's not majorly significant, um, will will really pull it back. Or if it will be resilient in the way Azusa was. I remember thinking Azusa wouldn't, would get hit pretty hard on its first reprint and not climb back. But that has been way stickier than I thought. Um, so, so here's one of the other things. We know most of the product suite, product slate, for 2020 now because we know all the commander products including the uh commander legends basically master style sets coming out this time next year we know zendikar's in the fall we know theros in january we know uh ikoria in in may there might be another unannounced product in early summer uh before the core set something like a battle bond 2 or something like that and we know that there's the green uh, mini commander's arsenal product that's like eight green spells or whatever. And then we know that the core set is about to ferry. So that's most of the slots. And none of these 1700 cards, therefore, or very few of them, have any opportunity for a foil reprinting. So yes, something like Alahamret's Archive is one of the commander cards. Uh, impacted by this uh, slate of reprints but there's no foils so if you're like Mm -hmm. me and you've been focusing on edh foils and you were worried about them showing up in the mystery boosters in quantity that's a huge sigh of relief because they they reprinted sure they reprinted etherflux reservoir but i'm not holding non-foil reservoirs i'm holding foils 
So my my twenty foils are probably going to be just fine to appreciate into the spring. Well, it's awkward because you've got you can look at this list of seventeen hundred cards and go, oh, these are all cards they can't reprint, which is or that they can't they will not be showing up in foil in this product line, uh, which makes the foils way safer. But you've got Commander's Masters hanging over your heads at the end of the year. later next year. So it's like, uh, I'm, I'm okay. So I, I'm fine. But, like, I'm are fine they going to put cards? Listen, it, it was very polite of them <laughs> to warn people a year in advance about Commander Legends because yeah, I kind of wonder if that was intentional. Well, there's stuff like Ristic Study and Teferi's Protection, and if you were holding those in non-foil, you're taking a hit here, um, probably. Uh, although, again, these are rares that are basically uh, brought up to mythic status, so you know I'll, there's going to be a lot of opportunities. The, the, the deeper that these cards crash, the wider the door of opportunity opens as we get to the point where we find out, A, how popular this is six months from now, B, how long they go without changing up the list. Because these are like treasure chests on Magic Online. They've pretty much clearly signaled that they, as long as it does okay, like does well, they're going to keep these around for a long period of time. So are they going to change this list every year? And then what percentage of the list changes every year? So is, you know, Alhamrat's archive just dead forever because it's going to be on this list for three years straight? Because that matters. Like, if, if this list, if, if they swap out all 1,700 cards after a year, then a lot of these cards are going to rebound if they even tank in the first place. But if it's three or four years that you can hang out, out on this list and they only swap out 10 to 20% of it on a given year, that's a lot worse. Mm-hmm. And a lot better for the foils. Mm-hmm. So... It's interesting. Now, the other thing is that there's an LGS version. And that version, as I said earlier, comes out, uh, I think, March 14th. And so I I would expect that that's only going to be available uh, based on what level of uh, WPN store you are. So the more active the store is, the more boxes this will probably be offered to them. And I confirmed with Gavin Verhey today on Twitter that the stores will indeed be able to sell them. I mean, it seems like a weird question to ask, but I was wondering whether Wizards maybe intended these to only be available for limited play. Like, they can't stop you from dropping and walking with your packs, but I, it wasn't clear to me that they were going to let us buy boxes. Um, mm-hmm. He confirmed that, yes, they will be available as per normal. Um, and so one of the things that's interesting there is that the slot that is test print cards um, in the Magic Fest versions is not going to be that at the LGS level. It's going to be a hundred another print sheet of 121 foil cards. And so now the question, beca- but but none of the 121 are cards from the 1694. So they're <laughs> now you got to start thinking about what 121 foils are are they going to cough up that they didn't already give us in the 1700 that they don't also have some reason to reserve for say Commander Legends or one of the other products this year. And I suspect that part of it harkens back to a tweet that Gavin issued a while back where he asked people what old border cards we would like to see in foil. Wasn't that like this year? Yeah. So it's interesting, though, because it could be referring to, you know, Visions foils, you know, pre-Urza's legacy. So like Saga and before never had foils. So 
a lot of the cards that haven't seen reprints since then might get their first foil ever. Might they, you know, might this sheet include beta cards in foil? Probably not. Um, certainly not reserveless ones. And, but it could it also be where we, you know, we've heard a couple of whispers this year about some premium cards like masterpieces. And there was like a, a name drop at one point of like Sarah Angel was getting a premium version that's never showed up anywhere else this year. Is this, is that the kind of thing that's going to show up in those slots? Um, like revised blackboard or Sarah Angel or something. I, I remains to be seen. I mean, those sound possible, but like if Gavin is asking this year, if that is it, it, what old, if you want old border foils, it seems way too soon to have gotten them to the printers for this, right? I I don't think so. One of the things that was uh, mentioned by an ex Watsi employee uh, was that. Wizards might be using a different methodology for printing. And this seems to be, which could be like short run printing on different presses, like smaller presses, shorter run, um, to give themselves more flexibility with this product. Because keep in mind, they're gonna, they might want to swap cards in and out of this product in the future. So it's useful to them if they can do this as kind of a side project that doesn't interfere with their normal print runs at the big printers. So, and one of the the things that supports that theory is that there's been a lot of uh, early complaints that these cards don't feel like the originals, that they don't pass the rosette test, and that they may not have blue core. Ah, oh, so wizards printed their own counterfeits. Exactly, and that think about what a clusterfuck that is for vendors, because now they have to, right. they have to train their staff to have a whole different set of uh, testing mechanisms for the, 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 this set in particular, not to mention how insane it is for them to... Everybody in the industry has to launch a 1,700-card set on their platform. Yeah, and, that that alone is seems like a giant middle finger to everyone who runs any sort of magic inventory system. I, I w- it would be very surprising if Wizards launched new card stock that didn't have that wasn't thoroughly considered in the vein in the in the the context of counterfeits i mean we have the hollow stamp specifically because of counterfeits sure but it's been more or less years since i've heard of any kind of positive progress against counterfeits as far like Uh, there could well be programs running in the background where they have agents on the ground in china china coordinating with their government trying to get real things done that we hear nothing about but certainly from our perspective it, you know, it's it feels like a whole lot of nothing while the counterfeits just keep getting better and better. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the thought is the counterfeits are improving and we haven't seen Wizards do anything else recently. So, like, it'd be weird for them to take a step backwards. Well, it's kind of funny, right? Because it's actually it, it would be if the stock is different enough, then it actually makes counterfeits of the cards from Mystery Boosters uh, easy to detect. Like they, they would be the counterfeiters would probably be very disinterested in pursuing the mystery booster version. So mystery booster versions might actually end up being a guarantee of authenticity, even though they don't meet the usual standards of a magic card. Has nobody with mystery boosters just ripped a couple in half to see if there was blue in there? I I haven't seen that happen yet. 
I just saw confirmation for sure that the people I saw numerous comments that people said these are not quite like regular magic cards. And one of the the examples was the rosette pattern was definitely off. Hmm. Which is like when you zoom in really close, the pattern of dots that makes up the images on the picture on the cards. Yeah. Um yeah, so that's all pretty interesting. We need to know what those 121 foils are because something that dodged a reprint in this 1694 could easily end up in that pile of 121 foils. Although I am expecting, given some of the hints, that it's going to be a pretty broad swath of cards in much the same way as this set was. Yeah, there's no way this is 121 good foils. Or 121 EDH relevant foils or 121 modern. I mean, it's going to be a smattering of all over the place. Right. Um, It's probably also, as as we wrap up this kind of initial take on this um a couple more things one is um okay foresight said this was not a pioneer set (laughs) fair but that doesn't mean there was no impact on pioneer here's a little list of the cards that are impacted for pioneer via being reprinted in the mystery boosters corsair crucifix fatal push coligan's command nisa voice of zendikar tireless tracker treasure cruise young pyromancer aether hub anger of the gods and become immense just to name a few um and there are more so while he said they had nothing to do with it there's no denying that you know some of these uh, the higher the rarity the more impact for instance nisa voice of zendikar has seen major gains over the last week but is going to see a lot of supply enter the market this year i i, I mean i i would be i wouldn't want to turn aaron's words around on him and say oh well you said it's not a pioneer set but well you kind of were talking about both sides of your mouth because this had a big impact on a bunch of pioneer cards because from wizard's perspective i can imagine thinking like well sure there are cards legal in pioneer in here that people will play how are you going to put together 1700 cards and not include pioneer relevant cards but you know in terms of what wizards considers a reprint scale this is just like not even scratching the surface, right? Like, sure, we're getting a bunch of Nissa voices and cars, but it's not in the 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 magnitude that wizards would think of that in terms of a reprint. Well, that depends. Again, we need to know the set size. So, like, we're at some point, I'm going to run. I'll write an article and run the math on based on some feedback we're getting about how popular it remains at GPs over time and how many events it actually shows up at. Because it's not just the GPs, it's also the Star City Tour. So that's a pretty significant set of tournaments. And then starting in March, it's like every LGS has access to yeah. these packs. That's, that's a lot. That That's probably, I would guess, analogous to a Master set. It's probably like when Eternal Masters came out. And it might be as high of a print run as something like Battlebond. It's probably not as high as Modern Horizons that was printed in a bunch of different languages. It, it'll definitely depend heavily on how popular it ends up being, which at this point, it's hard to gauge. We'll need to get a couple events in and see how. And it also could come out of the gates pretty hot. And then by the time we hit March and the local store versions are in stock, no one's playing at GPs anymore and local stores play it for two weeks and then they stop too. Well, here, here's yeah. the other piece of analysis that I think might give us a clue as to how popular it will be, and that's looking at the EV. Current EV calculations put the cost, the value of these packs north of $15, and that's excluding the test card slash LGS foil slot. That's really high. Really high. Because these, pre- yeah. these aren't premium priced. They're, they're meant to be somewhere in between a $4 standard booster and a $7 to $10 master's booster. 
you expect these to probably be in the market somewhere between five and seven dollars. So that's plus 10 EV per pack, which is pretty strong motivation to make this your side event of choice. And we got confirmation from vendor partners this week that distributor cost on these is somewhere around $72. So they're basically priced to the to the LGS like a standard set booster box. But they only get 24 packs instead of 36. Still, at that price point, given that it's not a $240 box, A, lots of players will buy them. Like, these are priced to move. But the EV is currently over 350 mm-hmm. So that lead, and there's no MSRP anymore. So what that means is the market's going to set the price. And the more of this that gets opened the more the EV will be challenged and repressed, the less of it that gets opened, the easier the EV will rebound. Mm-hmm. So your comment, it, your comments about popularity, you know, in the long run are certainly important. It, um, but that's a big gap, like a really big gap. Oh, yeah, at the moment, for sure. And that was what was missing from the picture on what was that Friday afternoon when these were opened is the initial packs got cracked and Everyone's like, okay, there's no foils. This is just a huge mess of random cards. And the the premium slot is this test card, which is uh, cool in concept, but like ultimately doesn't really matter for most players. Uh, and it was like, it, it, they definitely didn't feel valuable. And now the numbers are coming out and it's like, oh, the EV on these is actually really good. There's no question about that. Um, because, but, because, like, because is the average of, player going to like know that and appreciate that? Like, well, I, I, I think where it's going to get around because Saffron's going to write, run, write, run his article. I'm going to run mine. The and you know it'll be mentioned everywhere else. The there's basically two rare slots. I mean, that's the bottom line. There's a slot that has rares and mythics, and there's a slot that's before Magic 2015, which is a bunch of old cards that includes a bunch of rares. So, and the and the test print slot. So it's pretty solid. To have those three slots at a price just slightly above a standard booster pack where you get one rare or mythic. Now, in those packs, you have a shot at foils. But if you think about the collation process here, it gives you a pretty strong indicator as to why these packs didn't have foils beyond that one slot in the LGS version. And that's because if any of the 1700 cards can end up foil, you got to print 14 print sheets for foil. It basically doubles the number of sheets you've got to print design and put on the printer and it's not about having to print those sheets it's about the setup on the printer and swapping it out sheet to sheet every sheet that you have to set up on the printer and run for a while is a thing and so they didn't want to go down that rabbit hole also cratering the foils um of 1700 cards is more of an impact on the secondary market than maybe they were willing to commit to Mm mm-hmm so there's a lot to consider here. That is a really, really big gap. Like with a $350 box EV currently, you can, even if that falls like 40%, right? So say that in the next few months, you see that drop to 210 a box. You could still arguably be charging something like $9 a pack, which is like 27 a draft at an LGS and justify it. Because you, you would be, you know, on average, pulling that, that amount of VP EV out of the packs. Well, yeah, I, you know, if the EV, if the if the EV calculation, or, or I guess even just the stated EV is is available 
and and readily knowledge known amongst the the greater body of players and these could end up moving packs just because you're like well you know i but i busted out of the main and i'm gonna play a side uh and you know i can go do throne of Eldraine or theros but you know like whatever that's the same draft i can do at my local store pops possibly the worst prize support or i can go play the cube thing which is kind of amusing and like the ev is really high so maybe i'll just go do that instead well and that if, might drive that might put a lot of people in seats and if you're not excited by the test prints fine but what if the foils are real sexy like that foil slot isn't even counted in this ev calc so if that foil slot is worth an average of five dollars more that's amazing like if there's anything like a masterpiece in there that people are actually going to like that it's going to go for 100 to 200 dollars unlike the test prints which seem to be maxing out around 20 or 30 um that's a pretty big deal yeah, I, 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 the foils will definitely change the math for sure at the local store because I, I, I am going with the assumption that the test prints are essentially valueless. Um, I think that all of these other types of cards we have seen in the past that are effectively silver bordered just end up with way too much supply in the market, especially when, you know, we're talking about the print run on this being possibly comparable to master's set. At the end of the day, you're getting a lot of test prints in the market, but like how many people need them? Some people with cubes, some EDH players, like nobody buys these cards for standard, for modern, for pioneer, for, for EDH really, for the most part, like it's just, you're just going to end up with so many that that's essentially I'm considering essentially valueless, but uh, when you replace those with foils, that's a whole other story. It's also relevant that there wasn't 121 test prints. I think there was 40 or 50. So that sheet has multiples on it, uh, whereas the foil sheet is probably 121 different foils. So they will be naturally more valuable because they're playable in more places, but they're also more valuable because they are more rare than the test prints are in the Magic Fest versions. Do we know if it's a if it's a foil in every pack in the local store? Yes, that's the test print it slot is. is a foil coming off its own sheet, so one of 121 yeah. different foils. So you're opening a essentially a foil mythic with every pack. Yep. Sort of. Yep. No, that's but, that's right. Yeah, but some of the mythics well, are like well, it's, it's more like you're <laughs> o- you're opening a foil that is the same rarity as a mythic, not the same right. rarity as a foil mythic. So if you open a foil mythic you're actually pushing the price of that foil mythic down because it's much it's much less rare than it was in its original home. Hmm. Um, hmm. So, last point here. And we've dragged on much longer than expected. Um, no big surprise. EDH cards that are affected, the biggest one's Mana Crypt, um, but it's also relevant Soul Ring is in here. So if you bought, you know, listen to DJ and bought 200 Soul Rings... When the latest Commander product came out on the expectation of a six to nine month bump uh, or rebound, uh, maybe you get there, but going to be a lot of Soul Rings getting opened in the common slot. Uh, now they're basically Mythics, so there is that. Um, other cards, Expropriate, Teferi's Protection, Bloom Tender, Sliver Hive Lord, Teferi Temporal Archmage, Etherflex Reservoir, Alahomret's Archive, Elish Norn, Animar. Burnished Heart, Crop Rotation, Deep Glow Skate, Ristic Study, and Selvala are all money EDH cards that are potentially challenged here. Uh, and then mm-hmm. for Modern, I, I noticed less. There, there seemed to be less of an impact on Modern. It was things like Ancient Ziggurat, Fatal Push, 
Coligan's Command, Tireless Tracker, Meddling Mage, and Manamorphose were the ones that jumped out at me. Yeah, I mean, I didn't look through the entire list and then decide which ones fit in which which slots. Uh, but I remember scrolling through the list, and this seems about accurate. Uh, yeah, All I don't. Right. I don't have a lot of thoughts on the, <laughs> on this part of it. All right, so this is you know that's our first take on mystery booster analysis. I'll probably write up an article on this within the week and get it posted to our blog. I guess we'll jump in here. MDG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, what are our remaining segments this evening? Well, uh, we will start with... uh... I mean, I guess we already did segment one. We did segment 0.5. Uh, segment one will be our top movers. We'll talk about the cards that are moving the most in price this week. Uh, big surprise, mostly Pioneer. Segment two, our cards to watch, cards that we like the future outcome of. Uh, again, pretty Pioneer-oriented. Segment three, our metagame, we have the Pro Tour results, uh, which is basically just no one goes hungry. And uh, the Pioneer Challenge uh, and League uh, recently from the 11th available to look at. Um, and then segment four, we're joined by Evan Irwin out of Cool Stuff Inc. And uh, we have a fun conversation there. So we'll get started here. Uh, segment one, our top movers, uh, Pelt Collector, 3 to $4. This is the recent print in standard. Um, he gets one, one counter, every, one, one, one mana, one one, and he gets a counter every time something bigger than him comes into play. Um, he's showing up in the Hardened Scales deck in Pioneer. Uh, you play any creature, uh, virtually any two-power creature, into play with Pelt Collector. He turns into a 3-3 three, three if you have Hardened Scales in play. So he's he's pretty much just a 1-mana 3-3 three, three in that deck, I suspect. But still, that's uh, Wild Nakatl was banned in Modern at one point. So that's that could very well be good enough. Next on the list, we've got Hangerback Walker Foils going from 19 to 28. That's a $9 gain. I like it. I like it. I had a bunch of these sitting around doing nothing that nobody wanted that were, I think I, my in on them was 15 bucks a couple years ago. Um, very happy to see these get back into almost double up range and we'll start looking at buy list options for sure. Okay. Uh, hardened scales, non-foils, five to seven fifty for about a 50% bump there. Again, hardened scales showing up in pioneer. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about this a little later. Uh, rekindling phoenix 350 to 550 for also 50 60 percent there's like this blue red like phoenix spell type deck floating around um that seems to be used it's uh four brazen borrowers are seem to be common um and four elder deep fiends elder deep friend so i i guess the intention here is that you are using the phoenixes like rekindling phoenix or flame wake to sacrifice to other deep friend and then you get to just get those phoenixes back because that's what phoenixes do so it's sort of like a free cost reduction mechanic for for deep friend um which is which is cool and then they you know they've got the place that a kozlex return in there too because all their deep friend triggers it um nifty little combination there interesting i wonder if that this is the kind of deck where you need to see it top eight a major event to get real excited um, yeah it sounds a little cute to me yeah i mean it is a mythic so it's in, and in fact, older than Arclight. So if it, if the deck it's in 
does as well as the Arclight deck does in Pioneer, then it certainly has a shot at topping ten dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, next on the list, we got Declaration and Stone foils going from seven to eleven for about almost a sixty percent gain. Deck and Stone, I mean, white removal is pretty bad in Pioneer. There's no path, no source of plowshares, so um, you're leaning on some some pretty mediocre removal in some of these decks. I suspect that you're going to see cards like this fall off the face of the planet in Pioneer at some point when they they do print a good white kill spell into the format, which seems inevitable. Um, so I don't want to be holding these long term. I'd be looking to get out whenever I get a chance. Oh, for sure. The removal suite in Pioneer right now is kind of all over the board. Um, you know, I think the mana and the removal in Pioneer is going to improve dramatically over the next two years relative to like the creature base, which probably feels like it won't change as heavily as the removal in mana will. Yep. Ramming up ruins foils from four to about eight for nearly a double up. This is coming up from almost nothing when all of this Pioneer hullabaloo started off. And you may recall that uh, Ramming Up Ruins non-foils was one of my picks three weeks back to go 50 cents to a dollar. Um, that buy list has already uh, posted up uh, very nicely. I'm pretty sure I sent some of my copies in this week. Let's just double check what they are currently offering for this card. Looks like Ramming Up Ruins foils, you can get almost $3 already in credit, and the non-foils are at a dollar five um, on one of the major vendors. So that one's doing very well. Field of the Dead. This this continues to surprise me. Um, coming off a ban in standard. Okay. Yeah. Last week we saw the foils pushing pretty hard. Fine. I can see that people still might want them for modern or pioneer or EDH, but it's not really doing much work yet in any of those formats. So it's a pretty speculative pickup. And now we see the non foils taking off six fifty to eleven dollars. This is a you know, Somerset rare, sure, but just came out four months ago. This doesn't really make any sense to me, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I've seen a little bit of it in Pioneer in the some of those Golo stacks, um, like our Boreal Grazer and Our Promise and those guys. But $11 for this? I, I, I am really want to be selling these if I have any here. Because where, where are you playing this? I... This doesn't, just does not, uh, whatever. I'd sell it. The card has already proven itself and probably has no chance of a reprint. You can get 780 in credit on buy list for these right now. And I'm, Jeez, who's and, buying this card? And I'm pretty sure I was in on these in Europe at $1.50, and I just can't remember if I put a stack of them in my, like, never, like, not going to get there for a while box of shame, or if I buy listed them when I was supposed to. But I'm certainly going to double check because I know I buy listed the foils recently. And then when I saw the foils take off, I was just flabbergasted. <laughs> I was like, wait, I could have sold my, I had a stack of like 16 foils that I was in on at like $3 or $3.50 or something. And I think I took the double up on the foils or maybe a triple. I think it was a triple, close to a triple thinking, I mean, it can't get any better than this. This card is going to get banned. And then it did. And I was like, yep, out at the right time. And now the foils are pushing 30. Hmm. Crazy. I'm just confused at who's paying for this card. Maybe it's EDH players who who saw it in standard and decided they should just throw it in all their EDH decks. Maybe, maybe the set sold extremely poorly. That's also possible. Maybe this is a, is a summer set. 
Um, I mean, this is this is only one of the examples too uh, that we're going to get to today, where foils from the first set that had the fifty percent boost and foil drop are still taking off. Like, did Wizards just nail the sweet spot for foils? Did they figure out that hey, there's a market gap here where we can absorb, you know, we can improve the booster experience, product booster fun, make boosters a little better without really hindering the secondary market maybe because maybe there's a bunch of examples we'll get we'll get to more um so next on this list we've got wild slash going from 250 to five dollars boy is that a sell but you don't even need to be in a rush buy lists on the floor at the magic fest this weekend were a flat five bucks this is an uncommon Dang. from fate reforged so people that drafted in that era probably had four eight twelve copies of this line around i've got a bunch of russians i've been i was selling playsets at 10 bucks when pioneer first took off and was feeling good about it now i feel like i'm ripping myself off because i could probably get 20 to 25 for those playsets yeah i remember this is the the essentially worst burst lightning the you know marginally better shock so another uh yeah i'd be happy to ditch these another red spell that i think we both agree is going to get replaced at some point yeah and if it doesn't get replaced it's at least going to get reprinted sure Sphinx's Revelations, 5 to 10. Uh, definitely Pioneer. Also, <laughs> it's like I, no one who I feel like who has a decent opinion about magic thinks Sphinx's Revelation is good in Pioneer, but people keep playing it because they remember it. And it's like, oh, that guy played Sphinx's Revelation and he, he five bowed, so maybe I'm supposed to play Sphinx's Revelation or not. I don't know. This is a questionable card, so I would be wanting to sell these because I really do not think this has a place in Pioneer, and I'm not alone in that either. Well, one of the main issues is that this format currently has Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time. Right. Why would you ever play this over Treasure or Dig Through Time? Now, you can make the argument you think those are going to get... If you believe those two are getting banned, then Sphinx's Revelation might be very sweetly positioned... Uh, especially since I don't think it shows up in the mystery boosters. Let me just run a quick little search in their 1700 card searchable set list. Uh, yeah, it's not in the mystery boosters. Um, it was most recently reprinted in the guild kits last year, um, which is a relatively shallow printing. So as a mythic, that actually sets it up pretty well for 2020. Like it could go most of the year and not see a reprint. Uh, yeah, for sure. But that still needs people that need the card. Sure. Um, you can you can also, you know, make the argument that into the story is in its way potentially, um, since that is forecasting costs for three cards at the end of your opponent's turn if they've got a decent sized graveyard. Yeah, yeah, there's that one. There's the four mana fish one that just got printed that uh, is popular in Fires of Invention decks. There's also Pull from Eternity. Or Hydrate, uh, Hydrate Crisis. Yeah, yeah, just play Hydrate Crisis instead. All sorts of choices here, so. I like, yeah, I, I, I buy listed mine this weekend for $7. Yeah. So there you go. That's our official recommendation. Slayer Sinks is Revelations. N- um, Nissa Voice of Zendikar, uh, Hardened Scales deck doing very well in Pioneer. They're running four copies of this, going from eight fifty to twenty dollars, and it's in the mystery boosters. Sell, 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 sell. 
Could this be a $40 card in Pioneer? Maybe. Do I want to wait Ooh. and find out? Probably not. Uh, oh, that's a stretch. Buy list on this is well, still only at about five fifty. Um, probably because it's in the mystery boosters. So if you can get the if you can get out of these in the market, do so. Because these were probably sitting around in your box of shame. Getting greedy on pioneer cards just seems silly. like yeah. silly, silly, the silly. most damage you can do to yourself because this is changing so fast and so furious. Uh, which we'll again we'll talk about a little later, but let, um, let me give yeah. you let me give you a quick example. I've been selling J, Jason's Prodigies all week that I was in on at fifteen for just under forty. Market on TCG is closer to fifty. Who cares? <laughs> That's an amazing return for like a six week hold. You just get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. Yeah, I don't need to wait around to try to sell them for ten dollars more when I can. Pocket that cash and flip it into something new right away. Right. Yeah. Just you, you, none of this you, you, getting, you know, getting greedy on, you know, maybe EDH foils or something that, you know, we had a, a long timeline. We're like, oh, there's not going to be reprint on this for a year and a half. Like you can kind of be patient. But in this case, you're just asking to get run over by a train. Now, if Nissa Voices Endicar had not been in the mystery boosters, I would feel differently. I would call this card a hold in that case. Because I think the Hardened Scales deck is very well positioned and very unlikely to catch a ban. And and on that basis, um, would find would think that Nissa would probably appreciate another 30 or to 40%. Um, my only question is, do they run Once Upon a Time in that deck? I don't think so. Let me just see in the Pioneer Challenge since I'm sure there was a Hardened Scales deck. Uh, uh, they do run Once Upon a Time, yeah, sorry. As a four of? Yep. Okay. So that's... I, I spoke too soon then. They could catch a ban. Once Upon a Time seems like it could get banned. The, if it doesn't get banned, it's not because it's not, not that it doesn't meet the power level requirements. It's because Wizards is very loath to ban anything from Eldraine right now. Yeah, they run it as a four of. I mean, the thing is that a lot of other decks that are running it lose it at the same time. And it's not clear to me that the Scales deck in any way falls apart without the selection because they're not necessarily looking for one specific creature all of their creatures do a lot of the same thing you can actually make the argument that what they're really looking for is a scales or a nissa and once upon a time doesn't get either of those yeah i actually don't really understand what they're playing once upon a time for because it doesn't get hardened scales uh i i Someone who knows the deck better than we do would have to be the one to speak to that, I suppose. I guess it gets you your Winding Constrictor. Sure. Or maybe Pelt Collector if you want to get Pelt Collector down really quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I can understand how it's an upgrade for the deck. I think the deck still survives without it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't I don't think there's any question there. All right, so finishing up, we've got Ensoul Artifact Foils, 350 to 12. This was my pick last week to go 4 to 10. 350 to 12, boom, dead on. Um, Zozu the Punisher uh, foils 15 to 70. Um, this is one of those, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, Zozu, that's probably on the back of Tor Brain in EDH. Um, because That would be my best guess, yeah. yeah. Zozu punishes something to do with lands, right? Yeah, I believe it's whenever land enters the battlefield that shocks the player. Right, so Torbrain doubles so now, Yeah, now when they put a land in the play, they're taking four. 
nasty. All right. Yeah. Next one is Spell Snare Foils from Battle Bond um, 7 to 50. There are basically none of these around. The Dissension version is $30, and the other version we will talk about in a moment. Uh, okay. And then Foil Safe Right Quests 2 to 25, I guess. So this is a Lorwyn era foil. And the only place I've seen that it's being played is five color Niv Mizzet in Modern, where it's often played as a one of because it yeah. it's a split it's a single casting cost split card that can go fix mana in that deck. That that to me sounds like somebody going, Oh, and the Niv Mizzet deck is good. What else can I go buy? Or I'm just hoping to get lucky on this. Or there was six copies of this left and the six Niv Niv Mizzet players bought them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, most people probably haven't... Like, if you had a foil safe right quest, you wouldn't have it listed, because why would you? You might even not know you have so, it. Yeah, it seems like you could have a ton of supply come out of the woodwork if they're like, oh, well, this is six bucks, let me go dig it out of my bulk foil box. If they knew it was there. Uh, right. I mean, lower-end foils have been very resilient to that process. They just aren't that many out there. Um, so... Moving on to segment two, cards to watch. We got a pretty solid slate uh, this week, if I do say so. Um, my first pick is the aforementioned Spell Snare. The other version that hasn't popped off quite yet is the Modern Masters version. So keep in mind, this card is uh, sees like shallow to moderate play in Modern, um, mostly. Very little play almost anywhere else. Um, but it has a very shallow print profile. Dissension was a long time ago, 15 years. Um, and then the only other printings are Modern Masters, which was a notoriously short print run, and Battle Bond, which was a reasonable print run, but has basically been exhausted. So the Battle Bond foils are gone, the originals are 30 bucks. these are probably going to go 8 to 15 or so in a hurry. I could easily see a double up here, and it doesn't really matter that Modern's in decline, I don't think, because... You're not going to go deep here. You're only going to be able to get your hands on a copy or two locally or from a couple of the online vendors that still have them in stock. And then that's going to be it. And you're going to be looking for to just flip them online or out them to a buy list when the buy list gets desperate. It's actually quite a significant amount of buy list support for these foils. So I think you're going to be just fine on this. Yeah, I can see that. Given what the numbers look like for the other two versions the battle bond especially the eight dollar modern masters foils just feel like a, a free pickup like here you go go grab them before they disappear uh and it, it's been it hasn't been like stupendously popular in pioneer but it's been fine enough um and it is historically a very good counter spell i think um so it's possible that the power level in pioneer is actually maybe too low for spell snare to be good yet and it as the format powers up and average converted mana costs drop, spell snares stock will improve. Well, it's not available in Pioneer. Oh, because Dissension is yes. the first is the very first Ravnica block, so it's outside of the format. Now that doesn't mean they couldn't print it in here. And I, you know, future topics, I'm pretty sure that you're going to see five or ten needed modern cards show up in Pioneer at some point. They're going to use the toolbox available to them to plug holes in the format where they see where they think that's the most elegant solution. But there's no, I, nothing I, saying that spell snare is one of those. I am looking forward to how many times I talk about a card being good in pioneer. And somebody reminds me it's not legal in pioneer. <laughs> Fair. That's going to happen. I mean, it's only 30, 30 plus sets, right? To memorize. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, yes, it's not it's not difficult. It doesn't mean that I won't do it. So I like this next uh, next pick, given what I just sold these for. <laughs> yeah, I actually made this pick not having looked at our you know our segment one list. Yeah, I was kind of working on it while I was eating, eating dinner. Um, and then I flipped open the page and hardened scales non-foils had already spiked. And I'm like, oh, well, this is why that spread looked pretty tight. So I'm looking at hardened scales foils out of Gonsatark here. As we said, the the um, the hardened scales deck looks pretty good in Pioneer right now. Uh, probably the second best green deck. And if you look, when we talk about these this challenger lists, you're going to see that Nykthos... I don't know if Nykthos is getting banned, but I'm pretty sure that card's losing. That deck's losing another card. Um, in which case, Hardened Scales might end up being the actual best green deck in Pioneer. And with non foils now up to eight ish dollars, seven to eight bucks, um, and the Konzatark here foils at eleven, that spread is very tight. Um, and meanwhile, the pre-release copies are like eight or nine bucks. Uh, which is also very good. So Hardened Scales is, is great in EDH, that it's shaping up to look really good in Pioneer. Uh, I just see the, you know, the sky isn't the limit, but like this definitely feels like a $20 foil. Um, if not this year, then early next year. And did it show up in the Mystery Boosters? No, it did not. So I guess you have the foil, I guess possibly could be one of the foils. Could be one of the green cards in the Commander set in the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that too. There, I mean, definitely places it can show up, but I don't know. I think it's still probably worth it. It's a good pick there because they can't easily make that parallel lives or doubling season. Hmm. I mean, it's not impossible, but seems likely they it could easily be that they go with the cheaper uh, of the relevant plus one plus one counter or doubling cards. Um, I just sold a set of these yesterday for thirteen apiece. So certainly getting in anywhere under that seems fine. Um, I think you're right that the Nykthos version of Green Dex is in trouble um, and is a little sketchy. Like, I wouldn't be slamming Nykthos <laughs> as a spec right now. But, you know, I've been a seller of that card for the last two weeks. I've pretty much sold out. I've just got foreign copies left. Um, mm-hmm. But as I said, I think the, the Scales deck could survive without once upon a time and the format overall loses a power card it's not like it was exclusive to their usage so i don't think they slide against the format um and there's just very few of these around and and this is it's not quite mox amber but i've made money in this card multiple times i was an early believer in the modern uh hardened scales version of affinity when everybody else said that was crazy to dip into a color when they could just run the classic version um and We've already been through at least three cycles on hardened scales. Yeah, I, I think uh, we're all pretty much on the same page here that this is looks pretty good at the moment. I guess you do have the concern over possible reprints, um, but I, I get it's the foil slot really. I guess is what would worry me the most here because I, you know the commander masters is so far away that they if if this isn't in the mystery the local store mystery booster foil slot. You could buy this today and you have until next fall before the commander. Oh, well, no, the green edition thing comes out. When is the green edition? The the green spell book thing? Do you remember? June or something. In the summer. Yeah. So you still got several months before you have to worry about that. Yeah, yeah you, can get, yeah. you can get in and out here as long as the scales deck survives. 
Um, all right, my next pick is uh, if you were impressed by Core 20 foils taking off, you should be more impressed by these. This is a Throne of Eldraine Uncommon whose foil has been drained to almost nothing. There are 11 results left for this card, and the ramp is steep between $6 and $10. I'm talking about Mystical Dispute. This is the uh, two and a blue instant that counters target spell unless its controller pays three, but costs two less to cast if it targets a blue spell. So in Pioneer, uh, for as long as things like Teferi and Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise and Oko are cards that people are playing with, Mystical Dispute is going to be a pretty good sideboard card. And these foils are just gone. This is from the set where they're supposed to be 50% more populous, and yet we have examples like this of non-rares, non-mythics, where the foils have drained. It, it, it's almost shocking how well these foils are doing out of these post-M20 sets. Um, I guess the, the market doesn't really care that there's that many extra. And I mean, Mystical Dispute, I I had to double check this when I saw it on the list, but I'm like, oh yeah, I've looked this card up a couple times lately because I keep seeing it dotted around Pioneer. Um, and I think your comment about Vale of Summer getting banned and this looking better is spot on because it's been very hard to play blue counter spells when everybody i mean green has been the best color in pioneer since the format started a couple weeks ago and they've all had veil of summer in their deck whether the sideboard or even the main deck sometimes so like it, casting a counter spell is just asking to get blown out um and you know one now that that possibility is gone the stock on these rises dramatically so my call here is for these to go six to twelve which i think is going to be easy breezy and it's important so long as... I mean, all i got to do is look at the top 10 spells in Pioneer right now. 9 and 10 is Teferi and Oko, respectively. Mystical Dispute comes in at 8 to fight both of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, that's my second pick. What's yours? Uh, well, I... This one... I'm sure he's showing up, but I didn't I didn't see it. Um, Zendikar Resurgent foils you know i tried to split my picks between uh one pioneer and one edh this week but zenicar resurgent foils out of Oath of the gate watch uh are six bucks right now six to seven dollars this is an eighteen thousand list on edh rack uh it's an extraordinarily popular green card and the foils are real cheap there's not much in the way of additional copies out there um like there's the Oath of the Gate Watch and the pre-release, and that's it. There's no other foil printing. So, uh, and, and supply is not deep either. You've got, um, is this the one you've got? Oh, shoot, my foils got cleared, or filters got cleared. Um, Channel Fireball sitting on a stack of these at like five bucks a piece. I've got about 23 of them. But like you have them and then five or six other sellers, and then they're at nine or 10 bucks. Um and those Channel Fireball cell walls have fallen hard and fast in the past before once we started talking about a card. Uh, so I'm just looking at relatively low supply, definitely getting a little long in the tooth, ultra popular green card, um, and six bucks for a foil that every, you know so many people want to put in their deck seems well positioned. So over at Card Kingdom, the promo copies are buy list backed at 650 credit, 455 for regular foils. I know we called this maybe 18 months ago, and I'm pretty sure I've got a stack of like 20 at about five bucks. So I've definitely was in early. 
The card makes perfect sense for as long as it mm-hmm. dodges a reprint. It's not in the mystery boosters, but it could yeah. be in that green set easily in the summertime. So you got a relatively narrow window, but you do have pretty solid buy list backing. And the buy list is very unlikely to be challenged because between now, uh, given the name of the card, it's definitely not getting reprinted in standard. If, if you mention Zendikar, you're, you're not showing up in Theros or Ikoria. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it could be in Zendikar in the fall, but they have feels like they have relaxed their reprints in standard sets at this point because they've added so many supplementary products and also because you're in a standard environment. So for such a shorter time that they want to take the opportunity to print new cards. It doesn't, wouldn't surprise me at all if it shows up in one of the Ikoria um, commander decks as a non-foil because Ikoria yeah. is all about giant creatures. I have a sneaking suspicion they might actually give us like creatures that are so big you need two cards to fully establish them on the board, kind of like big furry, furry monster or whatever from uh, the unglued set. Um, and so if you need, if one of those is like Jund Ramp to cast a bunch of nine casting cost monsters, Zendikar Resurgent makes perfect sense there, but it won't be foil. And no. so that was, that would actually be the best of all worlds for it to c- catch a non-foil reprint there and set up the foils for a nice long run. I agree. I agree. You love to see non-foil reprints of foil specs. Yep. All right. Um, so I've got three more picks. I'll try to buzz them quick here. Bomat Courier Foils, Kaladesh, three, they're three bucks. It's one of the top ten most played creatures in... Uh, actually, top five most played creatures in Pioneer. And it's almost always played as a four of. It's an 11% of decks, 3.7 copies uh, uh, per deck. Uh, that makes no sense foils should not be three dollars for a card like that so snap them up while you can they're going to get to eight to ten dollars it's not going to take too long aggro decks it's a colorless card that has a red uh, activation cost so it's going to fit into a whole bunch of aggro strategies and for as long as aggro stays decent in the format um these likely have a future bullmat courier like is in discussion as you say wow uh pioneer is a new format i get to play the best one drop aggro creatures like bomat courier i mean it's like top two uh cards really good in that format and i think that you know as the format shifts and undulates over the next weeks and months (coughs) one thing is going to be consistent as it's people are going to be showing up with bomat courier and you know skewer the critics so it's so unlikely anything in the red deck gets banned, and this is just going to keep showing up and hammering people. And here's the thing: like CK backs the buyless play here at two thirty four on normal foils and two eighty six on pre release, so mm-hmm. relatively low risk. Yep. And again, did didn't show up in the mystery boosters. What's your next one? Uh, the last two are okay. So if we our new position is that foils are relatively safe from standard sets. Well, there's two that are way too cheap then. Vivian Arcbow Ranger and Soren Imperious Bloodlord are both are both foil mythics out of the um, summer core set, uh, Magic 2020, and they're both around 12 or $13, and they're going to be 20 to 30 in a hurry here because Vivian Arcbow Ranger is a four of in the Green Devotion deck in Pioneer, um, and Soren Imperious Bloodlord is a... Like, Mono Black Vampires is pretty serious in Pioneer as well, at least here too, and showing up all over the place. And Sword Imperious Bloodlord is just an excellent casual card because it's going to 
be in every vampire casual vampire deck from here to the end of the planet. Yeah, and vampires continue to have extraordinary popularity in Commander, even. Um, in the last two years, Edgar Markov is the second most pop- third most popular Commander. Uh, but my... I was looking at Vivian and I was thinking about I was thinking about picking her this week, but as I was scrolling through the challenge and I was just seeing so many Nykthos decks again, and I was like, eh, something here is going. Like they hit Leyline of Abundance and Othanissa, and this is still and Vale Summer, and this is still showing up. Although Vale Summer is in these decks, but I don't know how much that matters. So the the my only has a the only place I hesitate with Vivian is just I'm I'm not sure I like I genuinely don't know how good she is if something else from Nykthos bites it maybe she's still good enough overall um then she's still a good pickup and she's probably fine anyways but I, I guess that is just one thing that gave me pause and why I kind of just skipped over everything in the Nykthos decks this week because I was like eh, something here is gonna go so I'll just deal with it after the fact now you, your point is entirely valid that is the major risk here is that Vivian Arquo Ranger probably isn't good enough for the format she's just three pips and she has some good interactions in the deck but if Nykthos is the card that goes, then Vivian's probably in trouble. And the, the Vampire deck also can run Nykthos because it's mono black. So both of these picks hinge on how long Nykthos survives in the format. Um, so uh, they're not without risk, but they're foil mythics that are in short supply with a steep ramp. So, you know, pick and, pick and choose your battles. Right, 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 right. If you exhaust the supply of Sorin's uh you know cheap foil vivians might still be worth it um you have a favorite pick this week mm, i mean i hate to pick my own but i foil hardened scales look pretty tasty no i i, but I agree I, I think that's the pick. The spell centers are very good too i think that's the pick hard, hardened scales foils were not on my radar because i'm selling hardened scales foils <laughs> happily and they you tend to have blinders in those situations right it's it's very if you were in at four and you manage to get out on a playset at 13, you're doing so well that it never, it rarely occurs to you to be like, well, should I hold for 20? I, I And as you said, getting greedy with Pioneer feels like the wrong move um, since the format's not settled. And there's a, ro- a rolling weekly ban list. <laughs> so uh, the only thing I have turned down an offer and then boosted my price on this week was WMCQ Abrupt Decays. Um, because I see no scenario in which that becomes a less a lesser presence in Pioneer this year. And it seems that a premium version of the card is very, very safe. Yeah, I abrupt decay is not going anywhere. They're not gonna ban that card. That's that's very safe. But like stuff like Ma- um, Mana Confluence, Nykthos, JVP, all these cards that are you know, hardened scales, cards that are linked to specific strategies or decks that it's not 100% clear are going to be great. Um, I've been just happily exiting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whenever I sell a play set or I sell a card, I've got it set up so that I have, like, all of them in, I have, you know, if I have 10 copies of a card, I'll have all of them in my sell box, but I'll only have, like, one listed. And then when it sells, I take the whole stack out and I sit down and I pull out the one that sold and then I can look at what I have left and then I go check 
on, you know, check the inventory. Sometimes I just add another one to the pile and don't really pay attention. But for, for the pioneer stuff, I've been trying to make a point when I sell it to go back and check what the market looks like. Be like, okay, I sold my copy at 12. What does the market look like? Okay, there's like 30 other people selling copies, whatever. I'll keep going at 12. Or to be like, oh, I was the cheapest copy. The next guy is at 16. Uh, I tend to bump my price up here. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, move on through to segment three, Metagame Week in Review. We just came off a pro tour. Not that many people cared. This was, oh man, might be the worst pro tour in Magic's history. That's pretty bad. It, it was. It was. In, I, I. I did bother to plug in for some portion of it, but didn't cover it on MGD price like I usually would for a pro tour because the financial implications were basically null and void because the format mm-hmm. was so clearly dead um, that unless you feel like you know what the decks are post Oko or whatever they're going to do to try to nerf Oko if they're not brave enough to actually ban the mythic. Um, you know, <laughs> let's talk about standard once we see the bannings is, is the bottom line. And it's unfortunate because there was a lot of great players and a lot of great play in this tournament. There was, you know, the top eight had finished with uh, Paulo Vito, Dama de Rosa, Hall of Fame player against Andre Strasky. And uh, Andre won. It was quite the match um, with a lot of very tight play, technical play. Um, very busy board states, impressive play, and just such a bad format. Like they didn't really do the players justice. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I have friends who are hardcore. Like they every pro, they watch every pro tour, even if they don't really play a lot of standard. Like they're still watching, um, and even they checked out. Like they didn't care either. Uh, it's just it's just Oko. Like Oko basically has to get banned. Uh, because it is just so miserable right here now. It was a seventy percent food decks. Like, oh god, that's rough. That is rough. On MGG top eight, they called it Oko Championship Six Richmond. <laughs> like literally, that's what they named the Pro Tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, the top yeah, eight yeah. decks were Simic Control, which won. Simic Control, Simic Control, Simic Sultai Control. It should be basically food like Simic food and Sultai food. Um, Golgari, Agro, which was basically the Edgewall Innkeeper deck. Um, and then Andrew Cunio made top eight with Celestia Adventure, which you know Wizards was just be- like praying would win the tournament. Um, it was like the only, uh, other than the Golgari Agro deck, the only non Oko deck in the format. And I think people were saying that. Like ninety percent of the top eight was running the full complement of Nissa who shakes the world and Oko. Something like that <laughs> is is ridic- absolutely ridiculous. Um, probably the most interesting deck was the uh, the one that was sacrificing. Uh, there was a uh, I thought one of these Sultai decks was a sacrifice based deck. But maybe I'm wrong. I'd have to go back and dig through it. I, I honestly paid so little attention. And it, then I saw that slide maybe, about you know, how much food it was. And I was like, forget it. Yeah. I mean, this is such an unbalanced format. It's just a mess. An absolute mess. So standard's mm. pretty much 
we're waiting to see what they ban, and then we'll see if people care. Because one of the problems here is that Sanders is going to have a harder time rebounding, leaning into Pioneer having already kind of shouldered in and filled the gap for a lot of players. And now we're heading into the holiday season, which is going to be a natural lull. So Standard might have some, tr- like, basically be just off people's radar until Theros. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it's it's possible that, you know, getting rid of Oko brings people back into the fold. But with Christmas vacation and all that, and it just leaving such a bad taste in their mouth, they might just be like, ah, I'll just come back and, you know, I'll just come back for Theros. Whatever, I'm done for now. Like... I'll deal with this when the new decks come out. I don't own any of the cards that are good right now. So maybe they'll change. What cards are good will change. It was just unfortunate. Really, uh, really tanked. Really Soko really tanked standard. Holy crow. 70%. I can't get over that. So over at the Pioneer Challenge yesterday, things weren't a whole lot better. I mean, the, no. the Green Devotion yeah. deck got hit with two bands, Oath of Nyssa and. What was the other one? Playline of Abundance. Playline of Abundance. And I thought for sure the deck was dead. Well, nope, totally not. It just runs four Nisu Shakes the World, four Vivian Arcbow Ranger, four Burning Tree Emissary, four Elvish Mystic. They put Jade Light Ranger now in the slot, which does double explore, <laughs> double explore, and has two pips. Four Llanowar Elves, three Scavenging Ooze, four Voracious Hydra, four Walking Ballista, four Once Upon a Time, two Castle Garen Break, 15 Forest, and four Nykthos. Once Upon a Time is almost certainly on the watch list for pioneer but i i suspect they are loath to pull that trigger so and i don't think they want to kill nykthos heading into theros so i don't know what they do here because it was first it was third it was fourth sixth seventh so Mm -hmm. five of the top eight decks well, so the, these results, Veil Summer's still legal. Yep. Um, but I don't think that's going to matter. I could be wrong, uh, but my my suspicion is that banning Veil Summer will not remove these decks in any significant amount. Like that makes control slight. I guess makes control slightly better against them. Um, but I don't think that's going to do it. I think if they're you know gun to their head, they're prop. I guess it would have been Burning Tree Emissary. Yeah, because that, that that adds basically free pips because if yeah. it's like because that's it it's like if one if you're not burning burning tree if it's either burning tree emissary or nickthos like there's no or you know if you're talking about trying to target this deck and not ban once upon a time um re- did you happen to catch uh zvi Moshwitz's article this week no. He so Zvi but is uh, I always speak highly of him every time he comes up because the dude is just like hey, one of those Whip people, uh, yeah, just like another level intelligent. But he said, "Look, once upon a time is a problem, and but the bigger problem is the London Mulligan, and sure. those two in conjunction are so bad for Magic because it stops becoming about like." making sure there are enough cards in your hand that work together to do a thing and about like it becoming the same line over and over and over again, like between once upon a time and hardened scale between the once upon a time and the London Mulligan, you can just have a hardened scales in every opener. Sure. And it's like, if your deck functions so much better with hardened scales and without it, 
you will happily maul to five to try and find it because the five card hands where you have hardened scales are so much better than the seven card hands where you don't that it's worth finding that line, um, which means you spend a lot of time shuffling and mulliganing. The ga actual gameplay trees are more straightforward because you're starting with the same cards every time, like the hardened scales. It was a, it was really interesting, and I, I recommend anyone who, who was into that type of thing to go check it out. But um, I do wonder if they're going to be kind of chasing this problem for months or even years and you know one of the root causes ends up being the london mulligan but they just won't make the change i mean they should look at that harder because it's one of the few changes they can make that can weaken cards like once upon a time while not having to ban anything mm -hmm. so it should, it should be I, top I, of their agenda yeah it should be and as v points out that there's um you know he says you know you could split it you could leave the London Mulligan in place for limited where it's probably a net win, but remove it for constructed where it's a net loss. Uh, and, you know, just the question is, do you want to deal with the added complexity of having different Mulligan rules for different formats? Um, you know, I'm inclined to think that it's worth it, really. Uh, but, it's you know, I don't know. That That's a tough that that's a weird, a weird rule for them. I don't want to try and guess what Wizards will do on that. That's a tough, a tough, tough thing to do. So in second place in this tournament, here's this deck you were talking about with the Elder Deep Fiend and the Rekindling Phoenix. Um, so that explains why that's been making a move, because it was second in the challenge yesterday. Um, mm. And then, you know, third, fourth, same green deck. And then you've got uh, Blue-White Control in fifth place. This is uh, Planeswalker Control, nine Planeswalkers, Elspeth, Gideon of the Trials, Jace Architect of Thought, Two Teferi, Hero of Dominaria. Just finished my playset of the Masterpieces this week. Four Teferi, Time Raveler, Torrential Gear Hulk, Four Supreme Verdict, um, and a bunch of blue-white control spells. Uh, good to see blue-white control shouldering into the format a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, Time Raveler all, all over the place, right? Like, And it's still... we And you had it as a pick a couple weeks ago. Still a very good card. Uh, I haven't bought any yet, but I'm... I probably should. Um, and, you know, if you jump down to, like, eighth place, there's four more Time Ravelers again, except they're in a completely different deck. They're in, like, a... This is almost like an uh, Eldritch Moon. <laughs> All right, like a Shadows over Innistrad, like, limited deck. Because you, you've got uh, Archangel Avacyn and Selfless Spirit and Spellqueller and Thraven Inspector and Declaration in Stone. Like, half the deck is from Innistrad. But it's, like, a like a blue-white flyer beat em up deck that also just has four Teferi Time Raveler because it's got four spell caller. Um so Teferi Time Raveler is shaping up to obviously be one of the best cards in this format. I've been dicking around with building a knight, like a F and M power level uh pioneer deck uh with knights on the back of four history of Benalia and four Gideon Ally of Zendikar. Um, this is a bunch of nasty interactions. And I also realized that the white knight out of Dominaria um, is hexproof black, which shakes off Abrupt Decay and Fatal Push in this format, mm -hmm. which is pretty strong. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, uh, there's a bunch of different uh, builds that I think could find a home for Gideon. Um, and it's... Smuggler's Copter, I think, is like the second most played in the card in the format right now, and adds some another angle of attack, consistency, filtering for any of these decks that want to swing. I, 
I, I don't know what to do about this card. I wanted to make it my pick, actually, uh, when I was writing my article on Monday. And then I looked at the number of copies in like the one event that I was looking at at the time. And I'm like, okay, there are way too many here. Like this is so many that I'm now nervous about smugglers copter eating it too. Uh, and the really the only saving grace is that it's not in the Nykthos decks. <laughs> so like, it's not the top of the list, but smugglers copter feels like it might be second on the ban list right now. Uh, so if we don't, if it doesn't eat it six days from now, it might two weeks from now. Um, so I do think that like the price of the card relative to how much play it's seen is it's too cheap, but I, that price appears to have the fear of a banning baked into it. And I have a, like a couple play sets and I'm honestly like not sure what to do about them, whether I'm supposed to hold them or sell them. I think it's fine as a hold. It didn't show up in mystery boosters. And I don't think it's on like likely to get banned. I think it's like, it's a strong card in the format, but I don't think it's, busted in the format all of the kill handles it you know trophy abrupt decay uh, fatal push can all deal with it it's not like there's not answers for the card there's tons of artifact removal in the format if you need to out of the sideboard um there's there's a cute little combo uh alongside it that finished 10th in this challenge they're running a mono black deck that's not vampire based still does have kalita's traitor of get um, but it doesn't run any Nykthos. This is just four Castle Lockthwain, four Mutavault, and an Urborg with 15 Swamps. They've got the full four Smuggler's Copters, and one of their cute one-drops is Night Market Lookout at a Kaladesh. That's the 1-1 one, one human rogue that if it becomes tap, tapped, each opponent loses one life and you gain a life. So if it crews Copter, you get the two-point life swing and your Copter swings. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Mm-hmm. There was also, I saw a list the other day that was using inspired creatures. It was inspired, right? It was like the untap trigger or something with Smuggler's Copter. Um, you know, free way to tap your creature, essentially, that doesn't put it in danger. Right. Uh, I I don't know. There are seven decks playing Copter in this challenge list, in this challenge dump. And for reference, there are six decks playing Teferi Time Raveler. Uh, and there are eight decks playing Nykthos. <laughs> so, so like there's one more deck playing Nykthos than there is Time Reveler or than there is Smuggler's Copter right now. Uh, I guess the difference is that Nykthos is like, if you're playing the mono green, you're playing the Nykthos deck. Like it's just one deck whereas Smuggler's Copter is a bunch of different decks. But I, I, I don't know. It makes me nervous. Given that we talked about some other recent foils, I'm now curious what Witch's Oven foils look like. Yeah, I was going to mention that. That's a cute interaction that I did see show up in this challenge list that I feel like might have some legs. So Witch's Oven foils are only a dollar. Maybe mm -hmm. that's a buy. Mm. Yeah, he's playing standard too. And that and the standard deck might survive whatever happens. To yeah, I'll yeah, I think so. I think so, because it's just essentially a two-card combo that stands on its own. Um, like, it's... I, you know, I haven't seen the play pattern, but this doesn't seem to interact directly with Oko. Well, it does, because it deals with food tokens. So, I mean, may, may, yeah. maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you need Oko but to give a shit about this. Well, but it's its own loop, because you play Cauldron Familiar to gain one... Yeah. When everyone loses one 
and then you block with it and then sack with your witch's oven so they don't get any of the benefits like they don't get any lifelink triggers they get nothing you just toss the culture familiar away and then immediately bring it right back um so you just get all the triggers again. So it just seems like a, very, a pretty solid attrition engine. And again, you're seeing the Cauldron Familiar here in this particular list with Smuggler's Copter because you get to you know, tap it. Uh, I, I mean, Oko obviously makes food, but I don't know if this particular combo like needs Oko to be successful. And here in Pioneer, they're not running Oko in this list. Right. All right, well, we do have Evan waiting for us. But before we get over to that, um, we have our call out our $25 gift certificate winner from Cool Stuff Inc., our lovely sponsor. Uh, and not just saying that because uh, Evan's in the room. Um, we've got Pro Trader Leppy, L-E-P-P-Y, hanging out in the Pro Trader Discord. And you have won the $25 gift certificate. Go forth and spend big with our show sponsor so they will keep giving us these lovely prizes. Awesome. Congratulations. And let's move over to segment four and have a chat with Evan. All righty, we're going to leap on over here into section four. This week, our topic of the week is a special guest. We always love to have uh, experienced hands in the field of MGG Finance join us for a little Q&A. This week, we've got our show sponsor hanging out with us, Evan Irwin, Marketing Manager of Cool Stuff, Inc. Welcome to MGG Fast Finance, my friend. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on the show. We're glad you could make it, Evan. Yeah. It's been uh, almost a year now that you guys have been sponsoring the show, so about time we had uh, a representative on to give everybody the lowdown on your operation, as it were. Yeah, and that's been that's been fun uh, to give sort of a different angle of content for cool stuff to be able to sponsor. Um, and you guys look at magic in a really unique lens, is the way I would put it. <laughs> that's uh, the most PR-friendly <laughs> way I've heard to describe it so far. <laughs> Well, part of my job is to make things PR friendly. So, sure, sure. There you go. Fair enough. The uh, um, can you give us a little bit of background, Evan, about like who you are and what you do now with CSI, and where some of our listeners might be familiar with you? Because I'll admit, I know the name Evan Irwin, but I had to go check your Twitter page real quick. So I'm like, wait, okay, he's at CSI now, right? But wasn't he somewhere else before? So, like, just you know, just a quick overview for everyone. Sure. Um, I mean, well, back in 2006, uh, and maybe even 2005, I can't remember exactly when, there was this crazy thing called YouTube. And I was like, wow, no one's making videos about Magic the Gathering. Maybe I should do that. Uh, so I started doing that, and no one else was doing that. So as it turns out, when you're first doing something like that, you kind of get a lot of advantages. So before you know it, I was like being flown across the world, and then I'm officially sponsored by Wizards. I made this show called The Magic Show on YouTube every week uh, for many, many years. Um, Star City Games originally approached me and said, hey, we need a marketing manager. Would you like to come to Roanoke? And I was like, uh, you sure? Because I worked for, I worked in IT for 10 years at that point. Uh, I was a network administrator. So between I got to play Magic as a teenager and then stopped when I sort of got a real job, quote unquote, and then to go away from the said real job into essentially magic full time, getting people excited about events and content and things and stuff. And so I continued to make the magic show for many years from there. Uh, later transitioned to a podcast called magic Mikes, where I do a show with Ruben Bressler and Aaron Campbell, uh, who are awesome and terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then all mm-hmm. that uh, have been on Twitter since, I don't know, 2006 or something, 2007 or eight. 
I've been on Twitter for like a million years now, um, which means I'm also like not really on Instagram very much. And at this point, <laughs> my kids are trying to explain to me that like social media is on TikTok. And I'm like, what are you saying? <laughs> what, what does any of this mean? I, I'm, I'm getting too old for this. I, I, I give it about three weeks before the marketing department at Cool Stuff is doing TikTok sales. Yep. I got I to gotta start a TikTok account up and running. <laughs> I'll be right on I, that. I, I've been on Twitter for probably roughly the same amount of time as you, it sounds like, or close to it. And I also have never bothered to download Instagram. I feel like everyone who got on Twitter at that point in time kind of didn't bother for the most part. It's just the, uh, and even through all these years, there is nothing that will keep you in touch and on the pulse of anything you care about. I don't care if it's sports or politics or news or Magic the Gathering. If you want to know literally what happens when it happens you pay attention to Twitter. Like you're not going to get that from yeah. Instagram. You're not going to get that from TikTok. You know, like that, that's the, that's the mode of communication. Now I'll grant you TikTok produces some great A content, but it is definitely <laughs> of a different stripe than you will find on Twitter. That's for sure. Is it, I mean, is it just me or is it just Vine 2.0? That's all I'm saying. It yeah. It is Vine 2.0, which is why it's good. And because Vine should have never left, but it did. And TikTok is the spiritual successor, whether it was intended to be so or not. That is what it is. So I think just, just to roll the tape back for some people that may have just started playing in the last few years. I think I, I remember my first experiences with Evan Irwin probably being you and Brad Nelson doing your set reviews. Um, yes. Uh, as as things rolled on with Star City Games, uh, I helped create SCG Live, which later became the SCG Tour. Um, I helped create this thing called Versus Live, which is now a whole Versus series and the Commander Versus series and that stuff um, all happened there. And one of the things that I that I had at the time, I said, hey, I got this crazy idea. We should talk about every single card in the new set. And they're like, Evan, you're insane. And I'm like, no, seriously. Like, they had no one who did that back then. Back then, that was crazy talk. Yeah. You don't sit around and talk about, like, disenchants or whatever. Like, you know, we were like, no, I'm going to go over every single card. The first one, I believe, was Innistrad. Uh, and that was with Jerry Thompson and Todd Anderson, at which point we immediately dismissed Delver of Secrets as something that was limited trash and maybe you'll see play sometime. Uh, amongst <laughs> other sundries, if you go back, it's, it's, it's pretty terrific. But what happened was, you know, as there were so many content creators in Roanoke, I was able to say, hey, Brad, maybe, you know, we should sit down and talk about stuff. You're kind of like, you know, me if, if, if I was good at magic cards. And so uh, so we got to kind of sit down. Our personalities really worked super duper well. And I mean, I, I still hear from people to this day who are just like, I go back and watch them. I think they're great. They crack me up. And <laughs> I'm like, I, I'm great. I had a good time. And I think everybody else did too. And that's, that's what the, that was the magic of those as it were. It's a pretty big deal for a long time. And, and I think it's, I mean, there are a lot of set reviews, you know, to this day that are spiritual successors. I mean, we'd have to pay uh, homage uh, for sure. I mean, we, Usually with most sets that come out, we'll do a show where we'll bring a pro on to tell us how wrong we are about card evaluations and then <laughs> and then poke them in the ribs when the cards spike later anyway. So <laughs> we, you know, there was just there's only a few times where I got to say to myself, like, for example, Jerry Thompson bought me lunch one time because I said Deathrite Shaman was going to be in the top eight of a legacy event in like the next three months. And it was in a legacy event top eight the next weekend. So that was, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the stuff I got to do, which was pretty great. So kind of silly. you don't have to remember all the times that you were wrong. Nope. You only need to remember the times that you were right. And then throw that at them. Brad Nelson took a pie in the face for dig through time. That's all I'm saying. Oh, wow. Well, he didn't think dig through time was good, huh? Nope. I was like, dude, I got to tell you, I got a feeling on this one. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember the public's impression of they, Dig Through they Time. Thought, they and, thought they and, thought uh, Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise. Treasure were Cruise. 
Yeah, because the numbers were too big. Yep. You know, just the numbers are way too big. Yeah. Well, Not true. fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, they're still making the same mistake. They made the same mistake with Hogak this year. Oh, they continue I mean, to do so. Like, cost reduction mechanics are always busted. They're just inherently busted. Yep. I mean, time has proven them right. Neither Treasure Cruise or Dig Through Time are playable in modern. So, like... <laughs> exactly. Not also, I want to call that on our set review, we had Dan Fournier, and I was the only person out of the three of us who liked Hogak. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I was the one I, I remember... I, well, I, I distinctly I, remember completely whiffing on Hogak. I remember Aaron Campbell was just like, I, I you know, quote-unquote, I can't get it up for Modern Horizons. And I'm like, Aaron... <laughs> this set is ridiculous. What are you talking about? They even gave you a dredge card, and nope, it wasn't good enough. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people did not think Modern Horizons was good. Commander it was, Ma- you know, it's Commander Horizons Commander for Masters, quite a while. Yeah, I know, right? Commander Masters. Yeah, people like to crap on stuff. So we've established that your fingerprints are all over, uh, you know, the legacy of content creation and Magic the Gathering. Can you tell us a, a bit sure. about your role, uh, your current role at Cool Stuff, and kind of the nature and scope of the operation down there? Sure. Um, I uh, left uh, Star City around the end of 2015 and joined Cool Stuff around January of the following year. So from January 16 to essentially now at the end of 2019, um, I've been there as their marketing manager, um, able to uh, kind of go in there and look at some stuff that they're doing sort of logistically and and processes and whatnot, as well as on the content side. Um, originally, there was CoolStuffInc.com and there was GatheringMagic.com, which you know, back in the mm-hmm. day when the Google juice worked in a very different way, having gathering magic as your URL was, you know, bananas. But these days they look on different metrics and they care about different things. And ultimately you wanted to bring people to the site you wanted them to actually shop on. So uh, about a year and a half or so ago, I had the complete, you know, sort of uh, the transition from gatheringmagic.com to all the content being on coolstuffinc.com. And later we've also introduced a deck database and, um, <clears throat> and we've gotten a lot of content creators to kind of come on over onto the, uh, onto the website and including you, you guys yourselves. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly yeah. we picked up, you know, even before we were sponsored um, on the fact that you guys were greatly expanding the number of content creators that you were working with um, on Twitch, notably, and then later, it was interesting to see you guys, you know, take on that platform in, in particular from a marketing side of things. Um, I know your Twitter, your Twitch sales have been very popular lately. Can you tell us a little bit about what you guys been up to there? Oh, yeah, that was, um, you know, every once in a while, there's this like Evan has a crazy idea um, or Evan hears this thing and like we should totally try that out. And, um, you know, for me, everything's a remix. I'm not saying I came up with this. Um, but the sports card industry has this thing. Well, there's multiple outlets in the sports card industry that will say, Hey, we're going to open this box of sports cards, football cards, baseball cards, whatever. Uh, and we're going to auction off the teams and they'll say, you know, every Orioles, you know, card I pull out of this or you know, every Red Sox card or whatever. Um, and they get all the bids in from, from the people in the chat. They get the, the payments in via PayPal. They open it up. They see what you get. But everyone gets really excited. And I was like, man, we should totally do that for magic because we are like seven up for that so well that it just works and you know there's a there's a few things that we've essentially found long term doing that type of stuff which is one you got to kind of strike where the iron's hot you got about two weeks where everyone's super duper excited about whatever the newest set is whatever you're trying to do with it um secondly 
I really, really appreciate the fact that we have collector's packs because originally we were trying to do standard only boxes, for example. Uh, and we do a bunch of standard only boxes. And then we would do stuff like Ultimate Masters, which was fun. We did Masters 25. Uh, we did Iconic Masters. And having those big, big swings that are in the master sets, you know, you can get, you could get a foil XYZ, you know, a foil Karn Liberated or whatever. Um, having mm -hmm. those giant swings, that box topper was amazing. Um, got people really excited. And you get both the benefit of being able to, of course, you know, profit on your investment as a, as a business, but also create, I think, some really unique entertainment in that some people got some just amazing deals. You know what? Uh, Modern Horizons box, one, one guy got a Mox Tantalite and a Foil Mox Tantalite back when that was, you know, big hot stuff. Um, but, you know, there were plenty of Ren and Sixes opened for people as well, and, and they paid far less than they would retail for it, which I think is always fun. Yeah, well, magic players are nothing, are nothing if not degenerates, and that sounds like it's right up their alley. <laughs> I mean, I like to say I know my people, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I came from the world of PTQs, PTQ grinding, sleeping on hotel floors, you know, like, I, I lived that grinder life. I know how it's like when all the guys just have to go to the casino until three in the morning, even if the PTQ starts at eight or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It just is what it is. <laughs> That's uh that's that's cool. I like that. And um I, I guess magic sales are have so long been very I guess very formulaic because the product I feel like is so is so such a known quantity that a sort of clever ways of selling product and some sort of makes it exciting and inventive is interesting. Like because you could basically always buy any card. There's just a price involved, right? And 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 adding an extra layer to that makes it exciting for for people to get involved, invested, right? To, to be clear, to just to fully explain the idea, we call it the magical mystery auction. We auction off sections of a booster box. We say, hey, we're gonna every white card in this box, every blue card in this box, you want to get for X price, and so people bid on those, they pay for them, we open the product, we see what happens, and uh, I, I love the idea, obviously, of selling things in different ways. I think that's cool. I like doing things no one's ever done before. I I always find that fascinating. Um, and, and, you know, I'm kind of a showman at heart. You know what I mean? Like I like to get people excited. I like to get people entertained. And I think it's really exciting when somebody just hits the jackpot and gets unbelievable value for their money. I think that's fun. Sure. Mm -hmm. So can, yeah. can you tell us what mm -hmm. the Twitch channel is that people can follow to keep on top of that? Sure. That's twitch.tv slash cool stuff, Inc. We do, uh, we do product openings as well because the one of the benefits of being cool stuff is that we have a bunch of different card games not just magic we've got Yu-Gi-Oh, we've got card fight vanguard we've got uh pokemon and so when we get in all these products like dnd minis for example um i don't see a lot of dnd minis box openings and that is sealed booster product that has you know <clears throat> commons uncommons and rares and stuff that are worth sometimes hundreds of dollars and seeing that type of stuff opened on camera, you know, even if it's just kind of watching people open product, people kind of love watching people open product. And so we're able to put that on the channel as well as stuff like the magical mystery auctions. Yeah. The type of content people are interested in seeing with regards to product, whether it's magic or anything else is sort of shocking and not in a bad way, just like marketing executives of years past, I'm sure, who, you know, who may have retired, but keep an eye on how things go, have got to be flabbergasted that you can get 20 or 30,000 people to watch you open a box of something you bought. Yeah. Right. Like that's, they've just got to be slapping themselves in the face. Like, how come we didn't think of this? I mean, you know, cut to my dad when I was a kid. It was like, you're never going to get paid to play a video game, son. And I'm like, okay, <clears throat> you know, there's an entire <laughs> industry around that now. But, um, 
uh yeah it's, it's just it's a to me it's a very interesting and exciting way to do things differently and and ultimately in terms of the way that that opening product works and people getting excited about that honestly from my perspective i've done nothing over the years but kind of fought against the like super secrecy that is involved before a set is released yeah like it is really weird how right now there's a pre-release period where you can buy boxes and pick up boxes all that you want during that pre-release period. You can buy Planeswalker decks during that weekend, and then no sales can happen for like four days, and then you can buy everything you want again. That's that's weird. And, and so the idea that we're opening product, you know, when can we open product? Because people getting product before the release day, you know, is it tied to your pre-release? Is it not tied to your pre-release? That's a big deal. People don't get in trouble. And so for so many years, there was almost a weird kind of fear going around in terms of card shops, particularly those who do large volumes and that, you know, you can't show anything about the product. We can't open a pack before release day until finally it got to the point where Wizards is like, if the set is spoiled, officially spoiled by Wizards, they don't care what packs you open on product on, on camera. And that's honestly great. Wait, th- there was a period of time. There's a period of time where you could sell product and then four days where you couldn't sell product anymore. And then you could sell it again. Oh, that's what's happening right now. Right now, their their sales rules. So for example, for Throne of Eldraine, you could pre-order a booster box and pick it up at the pre-release. You can buy bo- booster boxes at the pre-release. But as soon as the pre-release weekend is over, no sales. Not okay. Uh, until the release day. And it's just weird. Why are we doing that? Yeah, that's what I remember happening was you would attend pre-release and we would be buying packs from other players right, who had won at the event so that we could draft it before the store could start cracking their boxes to let us draft on, you know, Wednesday or Thursday. Exactly. And then they kind of revamped the buy a box promo and then all of a sudden they don't, they just start to care less and less about when you sell things. Well, and they finally, I think, put two and two together that like protecting the hype cycle of the pre-releases is a good idea, but it's a good idea because you have the ability to link it to product sales and let that the hype that you've built up through your preview season carry forward into stronger box and single sales. I think ultimately it's like, again, we've kind of gotten to this point where there's so much you can buy on pre-release weekend and so much you can sort of pre-purchase that why isn't it just like a release weekend? You know what I mean? And uh, arena gets the yeah. set essentially a day early at this point and that's a huge dagger i mean you know magic players want to play with all the cards right now and they're kind of preempting it in order to push those digital dollars which makes hasbro happy right now the, well, the pre-release they, system in general at this point feels a little archaic a little bit i mean you know the the other thing is that you know a lot of other card games uh, one of the things I learned when I came to Cool Stuff was that every other card game is kind of in awe at how good Magic the Gathering is at its releases, out hitting releases every single time. Like when they say a set is coming out on X date, it comes out on that date. Whereas mm-hmm. other card games, things happen, stuff got changed, so and so changed such and such. Like it happens all the time. And whereas with Magic, honestly, I was kind of spoiled in that when they said it was coming out on next day, that's when it comes out. And whereas everything else in the gaming industry is just like question marks and things showed up at the door and we're glad it's here. Hmm. Like it's kind of more software oriented in that regards. You know, you kind of go down the steps, you know, you kind of say, okay, well, Magic's got it. And then Pokemon's really good, but has done things in the past. And you have Yu-Gi-Oh, which sometimes things can change there. And then once you're into like what used to be the Final Fantasies, which that game has kind of died, that thing was all over the place. 
Mm, I'm surprised. And a lot of that Pokemon had issues. A lot of that is probably the old school retail distribution DNA out of Hasbro, right? That their deals with Walmarts and Targets and so forth require product to arrive at the warehouse for just in time inventory on an exactly the Yeah, right but you know, they were moment. they were hitting those dates, you know, ten years ago as much as they were three years ago when they made those types of deals. So like sure. they've been incredibly consistent about it and that's awesome. And honestly, it's something a lot about the company. Like, you know, it's one of those things that you kind of take for granted that when they say it's coming out, it comes out. I would have never even realized that if you didn't tell, if you didn't tell us. It's one of the things again. Yeah. Once ago, so went to cool stuff, and there's sort of more games than Magic in the world. I, I was sort of shocked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Evan, can you speak a little bit about the scope of your operation? You guys have seven different retail outlets in Florida. We have uh, around 200 employees. It kind of you know ebbs and flows sometimes depending on things like holiday, uh, holiday work and stuff. But we have seven stores. There's one in Maitland. Uh, there's one in South Orlando. There's one in a place called Waterford, which is also in Orlando. Uh, Miami, Hollywood, Tampa, and Jacksonville uh, is sort of the, the breadth of the, of the operation. And right now we're only in Florida. Uh, some of that is just due to, you know, there's a lot less headaches when you're only in one state versus trying to be in a bunch of different states. Um, uh, sure. We also were able to kind of, you know, uh, keep our operation, you know, nice and succinct and we're able to link all those stores together and we have all those stores talking to each other and we try to coordinate things like, you know, whether it's the WPN stores, we, uh, we have WPN premium on, I believe all but one right now of our locations and we're getting WPN premium there as soon as we get some upgrades done that Wizards is looking for. Um, but of course that also lets us do like WPN qualifiers. And so we have to figure out, you know, which store is going to run it on which date and how we're supposed to promote them throughout the different stores. And, you know, one store can say, hey, you're at this WPM qualifier. Make sure you show up at South Orlando because they have one this coming weekend. Yeah, sure. And then on the e-commerce side of things, obviously, your main site is a, a huge hub for magic activity between, you know, the content and all the different games that you guys have up there for sale. Um do you guys also participate in externalized platforms? Like, are you guys doing anything on Amazon or eBay or on TCG Player? Uh, yep, we certainly are. I don't believe, as uh, far as I know, I don't think we're on TCG Player, but we are on those other platforms. And uh, part of that's because, you know, the, the breadth of products. You know, sometimes we have to get rid of old board games, just like we have to get rid of uh, Magic cards and whatnot. Um, trying to use software sure. to try to sync those things is often sometimes tricky, you know, when they announce Pioneer and everybody's buying I don't know, mm-hmm. the crazy Pioneer cards that they're all buying at the same time. Um, but, you know, we do our best. We have a, we have a host of programmers in-house. We do a lot of our software is 100% custom, uh, most of it. Oh. And um, and that allows us to be sort of agile. Um, but we're also we've been investing in a, a sister company of ours called Quartermaster Logistics, where um, a lot of the board game industry has went to two places, uh, Amazon and Kickstarter. So, Kickstarter, yeah. Exactly. So Quartermaster Logistics is a logistics company for Kickstarter fulfillment. So those who, hmm. yeah, so and we, right, and oh, we specialize wow. in board game Kickstarter fulfillment, which is uh, a huge part of Kickstarter. Uh, and we've been doing super duper well as a result. That's interesting. That's really So, cool. so if I want to, if I have like, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do a Kickstarter for a board game. Mm-hmm. I have a board game idea. I want to do a Kickstarter. I call up your company and say, hey, I'm going to start a Kickstarter for my new board game. And I want you to handle the logistics of it. Right. And we essentially mm-hmm. say from the factory to the door of the backer uh, that Quartermaster Logistics can help you make that stuff happen. And we have for, I mean, projects up to tens of thousands of backers or projects with, you know, 200 backers like that's happened. <laughs> yeah, It's a bummer for somebody. <laughs> you know, I mean, some some companies start out smaller than others, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just fascinating, particularly because I kind of came in at the cusp of where the industry really took a turn from uh, you know, more sort of retailer based where it's online retailers to Amazon sort of like woke up. And when Amazon kind of wakes up to your industry, 
uh, they'll come in there and just burn it down until they're the number one retailer. So uh, sometimes uh, it's better to kind of yeah. go, well, we'll, st- well, you know, we're still selling board games. It's not like we're not, but maybe we'll take a look at this other part of the industry, which is Kickstarter fulfillment. Yeah. Is it uh, is it fair to say that Magic is the your biggest product sure. line, or has that changed? Over no, no, time? It, it was the biggest, and, and far as I know, it's remained the biggest. Um, and we've put a lot of effort and, and marketing dollars into uh, making our, our content. I think is as desirable as possible. Uh, also, lean a little bit more into the casual side of things, um, which I think is a great angle for us in particular. Um, and we have a lot of great casual content creators as a result of that. So. So with the advent in the last couple of years, uh, you know, big pushes for, say, D&D and Keyforge and some other brands along mm-hmm. those lines, um, have you seen, has that, has D&D in particular been like a surprising gainer of, you know, percentage of sales? It's been fine. Um, you know, this is one of those things where you'll see it more on the Amazon side of things and you'll see it more on the you know, sort of Walmart Target side of stuff um, where it's not like our sales are not up. The sales are great. Um, also do note that I, as I am the marketing manager, what happens is there are product managers in cool stuff, Inc. that are, you know, that have sort of their focuses where there's a product manager for magic, there's a product manager for Pokemon, uh, Yu-Gi-Oh and non-USA games like Cardfight Vanguard. Um, and there's a product manager for board games. So I will talk to them in our weekly meeting and we'll say, Hey, sir, you know, how are things going? How are things being affected by this and that and the other? And so I can say, sort of talk about trends per se and that like, yeah, D and D is doing great. Um, but in terms of like, you know, is it like crushing our side of the business? It's not necessarily. Um, but it's really about sort of what we're focusing on and we're putting our advertising dollars and our, uh, and our sort of content marketing behind and, uh, and D and D is awesome, but there's also a level of sort of D and D purchase that, um, if you think about it in magic terms, right? Like standard is rotating every year, whereas you can buy some D and D books and you're, you're good, you know, for however long it takes you to get through those. When a lot of the the big the pre like their version of premium products tends to go down as you you know you guys are fully aware on Kickstarter, oh, yeah. like I I backed I backed a premium dice uh, Kickstarter this week for D and D where I think like the minimum buy in was forty eight bucks for a, a set of dice and I think some people put in seven hundred plus yeah and and what we um, found and and she raised she raised two point five million in something like seventy two hours crazy. I saw it like one point six million I was blown away. Um, I- yeah, because I've always found D and D interesting from a a business perspective because it seems so much harder to realize profits on that product line. Like they have to Wizards has to work so much harder to get people to keep spending money on D and D and D and D associated items. Just and I, it's always just you know I've never like done any research on or like read into, it, but I was always like, hmm, they must work really hard to try and keep money flowing in from this brand. The thing is that with Critical Role. And some of the other big Hollywood actor and voice actor driven products on YouTube and on, you know, private channels like Geek and Sundry. You got Deborah Ann Wall acting as a dungeon master these days. You got um, ex-cast masters from cast members from True Blood and all sorts of stuff going on. Um, you know, they just raised 20 million or something for the Critical Role D&D cartoon as like an adjunct like project that though it had the blessing i'm sure of wizards was not a wizards project i mean that that must really raise some eyebrows at hasbro and then there then there was like the whole you know they raised well i think it was like 11 million dollars or something on kickstarter they broke every record ever for a tv series that would be in fun there and then amazon kind of stepped in and made it a two series or a two uh, season thing 
And there was like this weird backlash. And I'm like, why are you guys really upset? They're making more <laughs> of this show that you wanted them to make. Like what? But Man, the crazy those... thing is that's just a group of people that started playing DD in the living room. And then you right. internet content pitch to geek and sundry, right? Like I was just going to say, those guys must have just be beside themselves when they sit back at night and think about, <laughs> Oh yeah. What's changed. Yeah. I, and, I... and, and, to be fair, we're not talking about total amateurs. These are professional voice actors, and that's a big part. Between their their chemistry as real friends and the fact that they're professional voice actors explains a lot about where, how they've got where they are. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, Matt Mercer is like an, a, you know, stone cold awesome at what he does. Um, uh, but I would think ultimately in terms of like D&D, you know, there's money to be made there. There's not as much money as magic to be made there. That's why they're not working on D&D arena, you know. Um but, you know, they're still going to keep publishing books and they're still going to keep making money off of it. It's still doing great, I think, between the sort of you know, sort of the zeitgeist of um, the Gen Xers and the, the early millennials kind of getting older. And it's getting cooler in Hollywood to be a part of D&D and R- RPG stuff, which isn't like a taboo anymore. Um, all these really cool premium products that all of the geeks who are well off or have earned lots of money can spend their money on. Um, so there's, mm-hmm. there's there's basically sort of awesome tangential money to be made off of D&D, but not so much you're selling the core rule book and you're making a fortune, you know? Yeah. Gotcha. So one of the things about cool stuff that I love uh, as somebody who's pretty heavily involved in MTG finance and spends, you know, upwards of $75,000 a year now on magic wow. is your rewards program. Yep. So talk to me, talk to me about how that works for the listeners that may not be aware. Uh, there is a rewards program at coolstuffing.com based on the amount that you've spent lifetime. Um, and this is something that we've discussed uh, a few times over the years, but ultimately uh, not only is it high value for the customer because you can uh, break out into 5%, you know, 8%, 10%, up to 15% off of your singles purchases. Um, you know, that's a great way for you to obviously build your collections. You can sort of take advantage of sales uh, more than, uh, more than in other, in other places other times. Um, uh, the, the, the customer rewards thing is the more you spend, the more you get rewarded. And so if you're going to go all in, particularly on the energy finance side of things, we've done nothing but ramp up our ability to take in cards, to be more aggressive on the buy list, to try to make as many shows as we can, uh, to get as many cards on the website as possible. Like that's one of the things we measure in the tens of thousands of getting, getting magic cards on the website each week. So. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the things I love for, you know, pro traders in particular is that they can use the coupon code, you know, from us or any of your content creators to get the 5% off um, just to represent that they're paying attention to your content stream. And then that'll bridge the gap up to about level, I think it's five. I think level five is 300 to 500 lifetime spent, gets them 6% off singles and single minis, and then 2% off, if I'm not mistaken, on general products like board games and whatever. That's correct. Where your margins are a little tighter. And the cool thing here is that I've always noticed that cool stuff mm-hmm. is very, pretty competitive on singles prices, just, you know, flat pricing. Right. There's going to always going to be some random on TCG who's got the lowest price possible. But if we're talking about a $100 card, that person might be at like 88 89 or something. Once you work your way up to the, you know, 10 to 15% discounts, you're starting to get hyper competitive on your singles pricing. And that, that has led me to spend quite a lot of money there this year. And we've tried to, you know, obviously keep that in mind in terms of sort of when we're, when we're buying and how much we're selling for. But uh, at the end of the day, we want to be super competitive just on the flat price and give that much bonus back to the customer. Um, 
And, you know, once you're at the 5,000 plus spent, you get 15% off singles and minis and you get 5% off everything else, uh, no matter what it is. And, uh, and you know, those percentages are something that, you know, we're like, these margins are tight, but you know, these customers have been super loyal to, to CSI. And also at the same time, it's the, you know, yeah, you might save 25 cent on TCG player, but you've bought lots of things from cool stuff. You're in the rewards program and we have customer service that actually cares when things go wrong. Uh, if something goes really super weird wrong with customer service, like hit me up on Twitter. There's never been a time where something, you know, you know, was totally CSI was totally in the wrong when I was like, wait, this was usually just a misunderstanding. And we make things right with the customer always. Um, that's just something that's happened many times over the years. So, well, I have to imagine that on those guys who are hitting, you know, those, you know, whatever, 15 or 20,000 spent lifetime spend is whatever the cap is, that even if they're buying from you essentially at cost, they're doing so much business that they're probably like telling people that they're, you know, oh, I buy from CSI, I have good experiences, blah, blah, blah. And like, you're not really profiting on them, but you're not losing much anyways. And they're just a free publicity pump for you at that point. And there's not gonna be that many people doing that anyways. So it's not like you're selling millions of dollars worth of goods for no profit. Right. And, you know, there's some customers who reach that level because uh, some people just want like full sets. You know, they just want complete sets. They get a complete set of everything when it comes out. And that's just, that's a, a style of sort of customer that you get. Or there's some that are looking for the super expensive foils and that's what they focus on. Um, and so being able to reward those types of customers that are long-term big spenders is something that's a, a really a good bonus for CSI in terms of in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly one of the one of the patterns I've noticed in the ProTrader Discord is somebody will put together a sweet cart with their discount at Cool Stuff. They'll screenshot it show it off in our specs channel and then everybody's going to dogpile in and clean up whatever that guy left behind (laughs) Um, and and those people may or may not have access to the discount yet depending on you know how long they've been in the game sure so you know they're gonna that follow-on business is what it's all about yeah all right so um let's uh wrap up here with a little bit of discussion about (laughs) magic the gathering in 2019 Lord God. How crazy how crazy has this year been from a vendor perspective? I mean, Wizards there was a chart somewhere I saw that was like releases per year. And by the time it gets to 2019, we're just we're all the way up the scale. We're like 16 like, releases. It's like logarithmic or something like that, just to keep up with it. <laughs> I mean, I went back and looked. We had between Ravnica Allegiance and the guild kits and the challenger decks and then the like month after month war of the spark mh1 gideon spellbook was in the middle of this and then corset you got, 2020 you got three separate mythic editions the collector boosters oh my god it, like wizards has just literally essentially gone hog wild now what happened was kind of quietly a couple years ago a lot of the old guard was either fired or you know just told it's time for you to retire and move on somewhere else because the a lot of this old thinking has kind of gone along the wayside and, and here and we're actually living in a very good example um oko oko is broco right mm-hmm. field of the dead wasn't exactly a fair magic card all right so there's essentially some thinking uh at least sort of the rumbles that, that i hear is that you remember back in the day and this is an off-told tale of where they made urza saga and it's just broken as as all get out and they drag R&D to the president's office and they read them the riot act. And that's why we got Mercadia masks, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, what if they didn't care if they made some broken cards? What if they 
in fact, kind of felt that it was expected that maybe we have a ban or two every, you know, six months or so. Or maybe that if we're not pushing these boundaries and not seeing what is the length and the most powerful thing we can be doing, maybe we're denying some excitement to the player base. And maybe that could be affecting sales in a negative way that we don't have these giant swings in power level. So when you have Field of the Dead and it gets banned, and when you have Oko, and Oko is expected to be banned, you know, Hogak. and I don't think that whereas years ago, I think someone in R&D would be afraid to be fired. Whereas now, I don't think they would be worried at all. And in fact, they would be encouraged to continue to push the envelope because crazy busted cards sell magic packs. And it's a, it's a pretty fascinating tightrope to choose to walk, right? Because you're balancing the hype cycle excitement of the ebb and flow of formats as cards rise up the ranks dominate and have to be removed versus the um exhaust the mental fatigue emotional exhaustion the feel bads of the cards that you've purchased being banned out from under you and feeling like you're being betrayed by the company i mean that's that's some dangerous quicksand to try to leap over as as somebody who's been there long enough to see these patterns and how they play out do you find that periods of greater standard instability, like kind of like where we're having now, where you have this crazy busted card and it makes standard suck and then it's probably going to get banned, mm-hmm. where you have these moments of this, do sales do better or worse than when the ship is just real steady? Um, generally, what you see is um, it's sort of like a, uh, you know, there's, there's, it's uh, troughs and valleys or whatever. There's, you know, there's, there, there's spikes and there, there's, and there's, there's valleys there where, you know, people are super excited about things and some ideas and they see a deck list somewhere and they see, you know, Saffron Oliver, whatever played such and such. And suddenly there's a run on things. Whereas when you're in a format like right now, where Oko just is better than everything else, there's not going to be some run on any cards or these crazy sales or any particular thing. Uh, I think ultimately the way that you can look at it is that Wizards has been, how do I put this? Wizards has not been focusing on the competitive players lately. And in yeah. fact, I would say they're doing the opposite. So where um, this is, you know, the thinking of, you know, there's no way you can have a draft without eight other players. Well, that finally went away and we got league drafts. And now it's we draft with bots on arena and like, yeah, wouldn't it be nice to draft with eight people? But they don't really care. And when we say things like, you know, well, if you bought into Oko's and your Oko's got removed, um, you know, like that's that, that the, you know, what does that do with your, your value and whatever? What if they just don't care? What if it's just like the people who buy Oko's in particular to play in tournaments versus all the people who are buying fat packs at Walmart and buying booster boxes off Amazon don't really care if Oko gets banned in tournaments because the invisibles are winning. And that's why mm-hmm. next year is the year of commander and not the year of Grand Prix and competitive tournaments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this isn't surprising. You know, the, the, the angle that we've taken on all the content we've been on the commander is where all of the money is to be made in specs uh, for years. Um, and, it, you know, we've been t- we're like, OK, commander masters is going to come. It's just a question of when they're going to do it. Uh, frankly, it was longer than we thought just because we came to the same conclusion, probably maybe right around the same time Wizards did, and it just took them a while to pivot to it. But there's just so much more money in catering to the casual crowd than the competitive crowd. It it takes a lot to move that ship. Well, I think there's something to be said for 
they see that they can just keep the hype cycle jumping from one product to the next. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Oko pretty much sunk sta- this season of standard. Like the, I would guess that FNM attendance is down. I would guess that Throne of Eldraine bo- uh, booster sales are not tri- the the long tail of that sales period is probably not doing as well as they would hope. But they also announced Pioneer. They also announced a huge slate of Commander products. They've already got us salivating for the next thing. There's some mysterious leak, some booster packs left on a shelf in North Carolina, and all of a sudden people are talking about Theros. And, you know, we've seen that thing, you know, that little uh, tactic roll out before. And you, I think the, maybe the most poignant example of all of this is how they just went ahead and released Modern Horizons, even giving it a name that kind of suggested a long-term commitment to that format and then less than six months later dropped pioneer on everybody's lap which is nothing if not a threat to that format i i think it's the i wouldn't wouldn't call it a threat i mean again this to me is the sunsetting of legacy and you know uh, i i you know i love pleasant kenobi but like bruh like your format's going away and it's totally cool it's playable on Magic Online for cheap. It's awesome that Eternal Weekend exists and they can have that. And they're going to have that. Just like the Venge players have had that forever and ever. But in terms of like big events that Wizards cares about and wants to put money in and time and features into, you want to have formats that you can actually print cards into. And they can't print cards in Legacy anymore. And what, what they can is like weird halfway versions because they're expensive cards and they help sell master sets, not we're making legacy playable and furthering it in the tournament scene because, you know, we're, pre- we're reprinting staples. They're not because they can't. I mean, I would take it a step further. I would say that this is the start of the sunsetting of modern. And for two for two reasons. One, you can already see it in the schedule next year. There mm-hmm. are actually more major events set aside for Pioneer than there are for Modern already, mm-hmm. right out of the gate before they've even seen if it's a good and beloved format. And then, um, so it seems to me that they've already kind of decided that so long as this format is at least as good or or craftable via bands into being as good or better than Modern, then this is going to be our new thing. And then the the flip, the other side of that is that it makes sense for them to pursue, and this is why we predicted this format a while back, for them to pursue whatever helps sell the newest cards. Like, people were criticizing Frontier when it popped it up out of Japan because it was basically created to get cards off the shelf. <laughs> but the format was pretty decent, and as it turns out, Pioneer looks like it probably will be too, and it doesn't hurt that, you know, retailers like yourselves might have a backlog of smugglers copters that are suddenly worth triple what they were the week before. Yeah, I mean, and that's sort of the nature of the business. And that's where, you know, wall of kelp or whatever explodes overnight. Um, but, you know, the, the the idea, I think, of having a, essentially a non-rotating format that is just wild and crazy and they can make Modern Horizons 2 and they can go completely nuts and make a one-mana planeswalker because who cares? Like, I, I certainly expect that at some point. Um, because Wizards can make that format wild and crazy and nuts, and they can reprint literally every single card in it, whereas Legacy is just restrained. So what I would say is they're not necessarily moving away from Modern. I would say they're pushing Modern into the Legacy spot. So look at where Legacy was six, seven years ago. That's where Modern's going to be, and that's where I expect Modern to stay rather than Legacy, which kind of trended into less and less events. Mm. I could see Wizards is certainly going to be more inclined to support Modern on a longer timeline than they were Legacy. Right. Um, although I do find myself wondering how much 
these formats can be supported uh, over time, especially as the card pool in Pioneer grows and be, the gap between Pioneer and Modern narrows further and further. Although I guess Modern Horizons would be a good way to make sure that the Modern Horizons, modern card pool stays dramatically different from Pioneer. I mean, well, I mean, one of the, the other main point I would make on, on this topic is simply that the formats will tend to converge. Because currently, there's a lo- there's significantly more sets in Modern than there is in um, Pioneer. But if you go five years out, that gap's going to be a lot closer. And especially if in Modern, they bother to ban anything, they the differences between those formats will shrink and shrink. So it makes me wonder, A, whether they're, they will even bother to ban things like Mox Opal or even go down that road anymore for Modern. And, you know, what... How long can you really go before the formats feel too similar and have are running all the same decks? I think Wizards has a very specific list of things that they find as pillars of a format. Like we all know, right? Mishra's Workshop. Just they're never banning it. They're never restricting it. They're never ever right. restricting it. They're never ever going to ban Brainstorm from Legacy. They're just not. And I think Ox Opal is one of those cards where they're just never going to ban it. It's just going to be a thing you have to deal with and think about, and it's powerful and it's dumb, and it forwards a great strategy that they're happy with, which is mainly turning creatures sideways. Sure. So the format format pillars that people are heavily invested in. Right. They they are always reluctant to ditch. I mean, we we see how they've handled Oko. O- Oko looked broken almost from the start. Uh, it's a little silly looking back at what like we did really every single person not mention how unbelievably overpowered that thing was it was painful to watch the pro tour coverage this weekend it was pretty (laughs) that the the number of times they had to allude to oko in a half-hearted jest kind of fashion was rough 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 Mm -hmm. all right so let's let's wrap up with just a little bit of you know what's the future for cool stuff? Where do, where, where do you want to take things? What do you think is important? Where are you guys going to be in a few years? Sure. Uh, well, I think as Wizards has begun to pivot into uh, more of the casual and particularly the commander type stuff that we're very much geared and already ready to take on that type of uh, challenging content that people might want to be you know reading and looking for uh, at that time. Uh, obviously, we'd like to you know be in more places. We've been supporting streamers now. Uh, we just got Covert Go Blue uh, a few weeks ago or maybe a couple months ago now, um, who is a terrific content creator. He both writes articles and we sponsor his stream, who's great, um, along, of course, with Jim Davis and Ali Antrazi, who are awesome. Um, so more uh, inroads in both the best casual content that we want, because we just got Jumbo Commander, who is an awesome YouTube channel to be officially sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc. So, yeah, so, so we're able to kind of put some inroads into the content that we think is going to be geared towards the most players moving forward and if nothing else, I think over time it has shown that the the more you can invest in kind of evergreen content, content that doesn't just, you know, in two weeks, you know, an article about standard is going to be almost unreadable because who cares, you know? Like, mm-hmm. who cares about the Oko Mirror when he's banned, you know? But mm-hmm. if you write about your top 10 elves, those are going to kind of be your top 10 elves for a very long time. And people like to look at stuff like that and like to read about, you know, this this particular commander and your deck that you built around them uh, and what you did that was unique at the time. Even if it's not the most exciting up-to-date cards, it's still content that doesn't necessarily get stale as fast as some of the more constructed base content does. All righty. So. Um, 
Huge thank you, Evan, for joining us uh, for this episode of MTG Fast Finance. Um, we'll certainly look forward to having you on again down the road so we can check in on all the latest from Cool Stuff, Inc. Sure. Um, that's a wrap for this week, folks. Where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, I write every Monday on MTG Pricing, the Watchtower series. Uh, Evan, we're really glad to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, where can our listeners find you, Evan? Sure. You can find me at twitter.com slash Mr. Orange, M-I-S-T-E-R Orange. Uh, you can find me on twitch.tv slash Magic Mics. That is every Wednesday at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard. Uh, we also do a top 10 show that's canned on my YouTube channel. You can find me if you search for Evan Irwin on YouTube or for uh, Magic Mics or The Magic Show on YouTube. Awesome. And how about you, James? You guys can find me on Twitter at MGGCritic, as well as via my weekly articles on MGGPrice.com. also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. All right. Well, thanks so much for for doing that for me. And uh, I had a great time. Again, thanks so much, Evan. And thanks, James. And I will see you next week. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Travis. Thank you, Evan. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.